This is the Criterion Creeps podcast. I'm Jared Duncan. RJ Baylog. And we're just two guys who have no other choice now but to creep our way through the Criterion Collection one spine number at a time in order to release. This week, we watched spine number 34 in the Criterion Collection, Andre Tarkovsky's Andre Rublev from 1966. But first, RJ, there's three of us this week. What? That's right, folks. As promised last week, we have a guest. My pal from over on the east coast of Canada, Evan Peacock. Hi, Evan. Hello. Hi. Hi. That's the only Zanky radio gag I'll do. That's it. That's that? Wow. Yeah, see, uh, right now we have this great situation where uh, Evan does not have a video, so I didn't didn't know it was coming. It's this. Yeah, there's no visual cues. No. With me, you can always tell when I'm going to make those fart noises because I have a very big, uh, elaborate gestures, but it's a wild card now. Wow. And RJ's kind of like a strange, distorted robot man. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah. Sweet. Foibles of internet reality, yeah, I guess. I guess so. So, uh, Evan, uh, I've known you for a few years. And uh, I guess like our common bond is that of film and the university. Uh, yes. <laughs> of which I work at and that you uh, graduated from. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yeah, I don't know. Uh, tell us, uh, creeps in this menage a creep, uh, how did mm. you come to know the Criterion Collection? I, I think the first conscious uh, interaction I had with it is I got this uh, magazine from uh, Save On Foods in Lethbridge, uh, and it was like a fifth, it was like a cult magazine, a cult movie magazine, mm-hmm. stuff kind of like RoboCop. Uh, the thing, you name it, that kind of uh, flavor movies. But yep. they also had um, uh, uh, an entry for Les Samurai, the Jean-Pierre Melville film. Yep. And they mentioned the, you know, by the way, you can order this through Criterion.com. I think this is, I, I was trying to think how I must have ordered it online. And this makes the most sense to me. I, and I'm pretty sure this is what happened. Although it's been so many years it's like the people at Area Fifty One. That's like they their memories are totally bad for, for, uh, for uh, what's it called? Uh, being a witness. I can't remember. Oh God. Anyway, <laughs> uh, then then I ordered that and Alphaville at the same time because I read I saw the, the poster for that in a book of uh, science fiction posters. And if you've never seen the original poster for Alphaville, it's pretty it's pretty great. Is that, um, is that the one with like uh, uh, Constantine in the the red background cover? Like the it's a black and white one that I remember anyways. Okay. and it's kind of like a cityscape. Uh, he's, he's there with Anna Karina, and it's pretty cool. Although the first time, the first time I ever saw a Criterion DVD, which I did not put together until many years later, and this was years before I ordered the DVD. I was in Vancouver, and um, I was at a movie rental place, and there was this strange. Uh, DVD where you had to pay fifty bucks to rent it out, and it was a the, the old print of Salo. Okay, I remember it because yeah. there's a guy getting <laughs> pulled out on the cover. <laughs> it's pretty brutal, and I remember thinking, "Oh God, this looks very worn," and I don't know why. <laughs> it costs fifty dollars to to take this out. So yeah, yeah. In hindsight, there's no other movie it could have been other than Salo. So yeah. So that was my first interaction with the Criterion. And it's also a little bit creepy, so it's it's vaguely appropriate. So there you go. What a way to kick off mm-hmm. your Criterion experience. And you've actually been to the Criterion Collection office when you were in New York. Yeah, I did. I forgot about that. Yeah, I did go there. 
I actually did forget about that. I I went there. I went to New York to go to the New York Film Festival as a graduation present for myself, and I was just kind of bumming around. And I thought, well, I'm just gonna go see if they'll let me in. And there's just like these two little elevators and this kind of little building kind of tucked into a street somewhere. And um, yeah, it's like, oh, I've I've shared this elevator with like Mike Lee and like Slap <laughs> Zizek, and oh boy. Anyway, that's a, that's a step up from uh, sharing a toilet with Robin Williams. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> anyway, yeah, they're pretty nice. I think most of the people who come up there who look like me, just kind of young dudes or whatever, yeah. are mostly looking for um, like graphic design work, or at least that's what the guy at the desk told me. Mm-hmm. But we just talked about movies. I guess the guy at the I can't I can't remember his name. He was really into like Abel Ferrara movies, and he was pretty pumped about the Pasolini film that was at right. know, film festival that year. Um, I think that was that year. I can't remember. He he right. let me raid his uh, postcard office or uh, the desk. There's like a or a closet. There's like a little closet full of all these postcards. Um, I kind of made a mess of it though. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that that's my Criterion story. I got you. I got you a house suit. You did. Story. Yeah. Yes, which is still in my uh, office. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, and because you were, uh, you made a, a trip to go see Inherent Vice in its world premiere. Yeah, and it was pretty fun, but it was also like uh, the press has seen it before. Um, I don't know. It was pretty special for me on some level. It was, but it was also uh, that whole weekend. I I didn't really sleep, so <laughs> it was not very like that's a pretty incoherent movie, anyways. And it was pretty. It was made worse due to the lack of sleep. So. <laughs> You, I like uh, that spot though, but yeah. Did you catch a glimpse of uh, Thomas Pinchon when at the premiere? Not consciously. <laughs> Not consciously. He he's like never been photographed, right? Isn't that uh, his whole bag? It's something like that. Yeah. Okay. There's like three. There's one that some guy took of him with his son in the '90s, and it's pretty like grainy and not very. And then he went up afterwards to go ask him a question, and he said like "fuck off" or something like that. But I did see Jonathan Rosenbaum though. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was standing in line to get my ticket ripped, and uh, I was like, Look, "This guy is like." He turned around, and he was kind of, and the, he was being very friendly with the ticket rip, ripper person, and uh, <laughs> and uh, it seemed all very genial and real. And uh, he turned around, and I was like, "What is? Who is this guy?" And then hindsight, it's like, "Oh, that was Jonathan Rosenbaum," and mm. that that was it. That was it. A, a brush with it. film critic fame. Yep, I he I was half a meter away from him. Well, welcome to the show, Evan. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Um, but I'd be remiss to say, hey, RJ, how's it going? Oh, I, I'm I'm all right, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing okay. I don't got any uh, real exciting news for you or nothing like well, that. Well, I mean, uh, we have a slow start going because you sent me a message about having to wash the smell of cow off of yourself. Yeah, um, this is true. Yeah. I am, uh, I'm back in the workforce, baby. Um, <laughs> That, that master's degree paid what off. A, yeah, what a, ma- <laughs> uh, a master's of science uh, yeah. with majoring in neuroscience will get you. Well, you land you right back at the farm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no. Um. Recently, some things had come up, and it's like, ooh, I should uh, start getting some money back in here while I'm actually looking for a job. So, I have uh, went back to the family business, Baylog Auction Services Incorporated, Alberta. Uh, so yeah, uh, I'm out there now, living life. Uh, mm-hmm. Sorting the cattle, doing that uh, auction market game. Are you familiar with uh, the auction market life, Jarrett? Uh, I'm not. Evan, are you? Not firsthand. 
I've, I've seen that one Werner Herzog short documentary about oh. auctioneers. There's yep. an auctioneer competition, which I imagine is like way more hyperbolic and over the top than yeah. what you experience in real life. But do you do you, do you go to the auctions or like what do you do? Uh, well, yeah, yeah. So I've I've worked out there since I was like I don't know like ten basically. So at the market ourselves, like our building, people bring in their cattle and we sort the cattle and then we sell the cattle. And then we let the the buyers come and pick them up. So, it, yeah, it's uh, it's not as glamorous as uh, the TVs would make it out. Like uh, the the one thing we always get is um, people who watch those like uh, auction wars shows, like the storage wars and oh, stuff like yeah. that. So whenever yeah. we do like uh, charity auctions and stuff like that, we have a lot of people who think they know how to do it, and then they'll get up and they'll try to like act along with us, which is fine. But I mean, I don't come to their job and start pretending like I know how to do what they do. So yeah. that's fine. But yeah, no, there's not much to it, man. Uh, the cows come in. Back in my uh, my more fit youth years, I was always in the back sorting the cattle and stuff like that. Today I was not. I was up on the stand writing out cards and taking numbers and stuff like that. So, But I do smell like cow. That is accurate. Mm-hmm. My cats were uh, totally uh, taken aback by it because uh, it's been a while since I've been out there since – before they were born, I guess. So it's a, it's a whole new world, Jer, of mm. poop smells and <laughs> raw flesh and stuff like that. So. All, all the smells of life. Yeah, so very creepy and very fitting because this movie had some cows in it too. Yep. <laughs> that poor bastard. Uh, so uh, well, so more... to uh, brighten people's spirits, I'll, uh, I'll put out on the Instagram some pictures of cows doing nice stuff. Yep. Nice fluffy cows. N- nice things happening to cows. Yeah. Yeah. Well, folks, uh, that brings us to our next segment where we talk about what we've been creeping on this week. Uh, I don't know who wants to go first. Perhaps our guest, Evan. Uh, Evan, what have you managed to creep on in your viewing this week? Some movies? Yeah. Oh, man. Um, oh, geez. I saw, I saw La La Land and... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Is that your review? Uh, was, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty colorful. Yeah. Like, I watched, the next day I watched Silence, the new Scorsese movie, and there's something that's, like, way more watchable about it. It's very, like, it, it moves forward really, like, at a pace. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't have much to say about La La Land. Uh, Silence was pretty good, though. Um kind of a slow burn oh man i know that's like the lamest <laughs> the lamest like summary of that thing ever but it's yeah i don't know i've been watching a lot of scorsese movies again re- re-watching like raging bull and stuff like that and i've uh so silence i maybe my expectations were for more hmm. i don't know i don't know what i was expecting I don't know. The sound design was pretty cool, though. Um, oh, it's a very quiet movie. <laughs> uh, how, how, yeah. are the, uh, how are those performances? Because uh, all I know is that like, uh, I, I love me some Martin Scorsese, but I haven't been really a big fan of his choice in leading actors of late. And that's mostly just down to like Leonardo DiCaprio just being like so uh, like 
average to me and like he basically got like two of the next most like average men, like actors around and Andrew <laughs> Garfield and Adam Driver I just I don't get why they're in everything but they are it's their year but uh, they keep showing up and stuff so I'm kind of curious how they fare particularly since it looks like uh, Andrew Garfield gets to do like yet another like accent and like be mm-hmm. a man like with his own like spiritual faith in, in question just which is like Hacksaw Ridge <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, we, yeah, we, you and I both saw Hacksaw Ridge yet. Hey, Arjun, did you see Hacksaw Ridge too? Or oh yeah, I did man. Me yeah. and Jarrett, uh, we creeped to that together. We uh, held hands and stuff, and we went <laughs> in the theater at the same time. So mm-hmm. you need uh, to in that movie. Yeah, yeah I'm a I'm of a different camp. Uh, I like Andrew Garfield, and uh, mm-hmm. of course my main man Mel. So I was always I was destined to like it regardless. Fair enough. Yeah, I I don't mind Andrew Garfield. I think he's pretty good in Silence. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, I think he's less distracting than Leonardo DiCaprio, honestly, for me. Okay. Um, who I think can also be pretty decent. Uh, I'm a bad judge for acting uh, and actors. Um, it did feel a bit, uh, off at times. Like, like you say with the accents, when Liam Neeson does show up, he doesn't really, he's just Liam Neeson, you know, just kind of speaking. Like Liam Neeson does and everything, and right. um, I actually I didn't mind Adam Driver's kind of weirdness. It was sort of okay. Uh, I didn't really believe that they were priests too much, which I guess is kind of the whole point of the movie on some <laughs> level. Yeah, <laughs> I believe that they were convicted like that. I was sold on them being convicted to like uh, a mission. But it didn't feel religious to me, particularly, which sounds kind of stupid. But I don't. That's well. I mean, thinking of like Andre Rublev because uh, that's the movie for today, I guess. Yep. Right. Um, I guess I could bring it up more later. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, in terms of like the question of faith and action, ah oh, man, yeah, I don't know. I'm pretty wishy washy too when it comes to movies. So. <laughs> I, I, I'm pro- I'm just gonna shut up until we start talking about Andre Rublev and then. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it, it, I also saw Ben Affleck and that was that was that was a movie all right too. So. Oh, <laughs> the the Dennis Lehane yeah. movie. I guess so. Yeah. Who's that? Is that he's the guy? Who wrote he's, the yeah, he's the author. Yeah. Boston uh, noir author guy. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. No. Yeah. I think my yeah out of my depth too on that one. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> hey Evan, I got a question for you. Yeah, yeah, man, yeah. Did any of those movies have cows in them? Oh, man, I think, um, oh, gosh. Not, Maybe not, you silence. I was trying to think, you know. Some I'm Japanese say, cows? No. <laughs> no, yeah, I'm going to say straight up, no, unless it's like ex- an extra cow, a cow extra in the back of maybe a, a Japanese street scene, which there are a few. Mm-hmm. Um, they do get work here and there. Yeah. Yeah, La La Land, nothing that I can remember. <laughs> Uh, bastards. No, yeah, <laughs> typecasting ruins movies again. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, no, nothing in the Boston noir. Um, <laughs> the Ben Affleck by night. That's bullshit. Night, yeah, yeah. yeah well, no well you can't win them all, I guess. All right. No, Cal Free Weekend. Well, that's too bad. All right, Evan, you're off the hook. RJ, what have you Yo. been creeping on this week? Oh, baby. What have I been creeping on? Uh, well, uh, me and Andrea actually had like a really shitty week. So mm-hmm. we were just feeling like we were feeling pretty bad. 
So uh, we spent the whole weekend rewatching comedy favorites, Jarrett, from our past. Uh, and you can, as you can imagine, we were dazzled, we laughed, we cried, and sometimes we were pretty disappointed with what we had <laughs> thought was a good movie, but having not seen it for 15 years doesn't hold up very well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I watched a lot of stuff. Uh, but I'm only going to talk about the real good ones because, you know, we got we got stuff to do today, baby. We got yeah. a big, big bastard to cover. So I'm just going to hit some of the, the major hitters. Hit us with that it. That sounds, sounds all right. Uh, so I watched me some uh, Ace Ventura, number one and number two. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, that's a major hitter in my books. I don't fucking care what anybody says. Um, so I don't know if you know this, Jared, but when I was a little kid, I used to wear Hawaiian t-shirts and mm-hmm. walk around and do my hair like Jim Carrey and uh, do the voices because he was my goddamn hero. Mm-hmm. He actually even shares my my birthday. So I think we have an astral connection of some sort. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I watched uh, Ace Ventura 1 and 2. And I'm going to say this, uh, those things hold up real good. They're real nice movies. Mm-hmm. I think they're wicked. The jokes are good. Um, some people might not be a fan of how over the top Jim Carrey is now. But let me tell you, fucking 1993, that shit was tight. Uh, (laughs) He's he's awesome, man. I mean, what can you say about Jim Carrey? He's so much fun. He's a good Canadian boy. He doesn't take things too seriously. Uh, I did spot one thing I thought was pretty funny. Uh, uh, I'd never noticed it before, but in Ace Ventura 1, when uh, he is meeting with the police chief, uh, Lois Einhorn on the desk is two big apples with a banana through them wow. that look <laughs> like a penis and testicles. Uh, and I was like, whoa, foreshadowing. Because uh, I had never watched that movie as an adult before. I've watched it hundreds of times as a kid, but uh, uh, no, I, I was like, that is a neat. Uh, and then Ace Ventura 2, some of uh, my most favorite, favorite, most quoted lines of all time. You know, like Bumblebee Tuna and uh, Pretty Hot in These Rhinos, stuff like that. It's all good fun, Jer. Um, and I uh, I connect with him, man. He's there. He's just out there for the animals. He's really trying to help them out. So uh, if anyone asks you, you tell him I said so. Ace Ventura 1 and Ace Ventura 2 are uh, both five-star affairs to this day, 20 years later almost. All right. <laughs> so uh, real nice. Uh what else did I watch? Um, oh, last uh, yesterday I watched uh, one of my all-time favorites, The Sandlot from 1993. Okay. If anyone's not familiar, it takes place in the 50s. You got a ragtag group of boys who go to the Sandlot, play baseball all the time, uh, and then you got this real Melvin kind of wiener kid who comes, doesn't know how to play, got this ridiculous hat, and uh, he's trying to fit in and. Uh, they need a ball, and they don't have 98 cents in 1950 because that's a lot of money. So a kid hits a home run, and they need a new ball. So the kid, the wiener kid, goes home to get his, and uh, he brings it back, and he hits a home run, and it goes over the fence. But uh, he's in trouble, Jarrett, because Uh-oh. that was his stepdad's ball that was signed by Babe Ruth, the great Bambino. And uh, it's not just any yard they knocked the ball in. It's the yard of the infamous Beast, a uh, big dog that eats kids. Who's owned by uh, James Earl Jones? Yeah, yeah. It's like a big uh, Saint Bernard, right? Uh, it is. Um, fuck. It's not a Saint Bernard. It's uh something Mastiff. Oh, okay. It's like a tan, not tan Mastiff, but the Andrew next, knew the name. Yeah, the next big dog after a yeah. uh, Saint Bernard. It's yeah, it's a Mastiff, but uh, I can't remember like the precursor to it. 
Uh, that movie is fucking awesome. Uh, it's a slice of life. Americana, Jared. Let's you know that magic is real. Kids can get out there and still do stuff. Um, that's another movie. I'm pretty biased. Like, I used to rent that fucking thing, like, I don't know, once a month when I was little. But uh, I got a pretty strong sentimental attachment to, to it. And I still think it holds up a lot. Like, if you were to watch it, you'd probably give it, like, three stars, I think. <laughs> Maybe two, I don't know, but to me, it's a that's another five star affair. Okay, no, so. I, I, that's a movie I do. Uh, I also have nostalgia for that movie. Um, that's probably, I think it's like one of my sister's like all time favorite movies. But yeah. yeah, no, we just like we had a copy of it on tape or whatever, and it was like it's easy, comfortable, uh, cozy watching. Um, exactly, Evan. Do it's... you have any thought feelings toward the Sandlot? I was a I was a little Rascals '90s remake kid, oh, okay. so. <laughs> Where they eat, yeah. Well, not really, even honestly. <laughs> I don't have any. I don't have any too direct feels. Yeah, like I said, I probably have more more memories of watching that really weird little Rascals remake. Okay. That, that's about what. That's, that's what I got. That's a good one too. Mm-hmm. That's a good yeah. one too. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just love the yeah. Sandlot. Like I like mm-hmm. when they uh, they all do chew and get really sick and throw up all over each other. <laughs> that's in that go- that, that's yeah. a, that's a staple of uh, yeah. '90s children movies because I remember like in like Problem Child, there's like mm-hmm. uh, projectile vomiting. I think in the second one, um, at a party. Yeah. yeah. Oh. I just I love it because uh, that song Tequila is playing and they're all on like the roller coaster and you can just see <laughs> oh. them all getting really pale. And then uh, they all come out just – it's like it's comically huge puke. Like like some guys were standing around with buckets and like just threw the buckets at them. So that's good. You get the, the real uh, dorky Poindexter kid uh, being a real fucking sweet dude pretending that he drowns so that he can kiss the lifeguard babe. That's a sweet move. So uh, yeah, The Sandlot, uh, 10 out of 10, one of the best movies ever. Um, and James Earl Jones is in it. Hey, did you know he was voted the most trustworthy man in America? I did not know that. You know who's number two? Who? Tom Hanks. Wow. James Earl Jones outranks Tom Hanks, and I find that ludicrous, but... Why? <laughs> I don't know. There was a survey one time, and they're like, who's the most trustworthy celebrity? And it was like, James Earl Jones, I guess. It's from those years of him saying, this is CNN, and it always was. And it always was. Yeah, you're goddamn right. Uh, so I'm just going to finish up real quick for you, Jer, because I know we got lot, not a lot of time. But uh, I watched another movie, which I is also sentimental to me. I also rented this fucker every weekend. But uh, I actually, I do think it holds up. I think it's really good. And that is a uh, 1998's Can't Hardly Wait. Uh, and this movie is the bomb. So if... <laughs> If you haven't seen it, it's the uh, last day of high school. There's going to be a big party at this person's house. Everyone's going. The uh, the jock, the quarterback, he just broke up with the most popular girl in school. So everyone wants to go because they want to date that chick. Played by a, a young, uh, hot Jennifer Love Hewitt. Uh, she is uh, just into the game. You got uh, the kid, Preston Myers, who loves her, who has always loved her. And he's trying to get in there. You got Seth Green hanging out with uh, some gangsters and talking a little bit uh, politically incorrect, I guess, by this day of age. But uh, this movie is fucking awesome. It is like, it's got everything you can want, man. It's got growing up. You you laugh, you cry, you cheer. It's got it all. Have you guys seen Can't Hardly Wait? Do you have any opinions on it? I watched that movie in theater, um, and I also vaguely remember really liking it in <laughs> when I was in 
high school, I guess. Um, but I've had like really no impulse to ever watch it again. Um, mm. I just feel like, I mean, it's kind of like something like American Pie or whatever, where all these things, I don't know if they're going to uh, transcend space and time. And like the, the things will be like, I don't know. I, I don't want to visit those memories again. <laughs> well, I'll say this. We actually watched all of the American Pies this weekend too. Uh, and there's nostalgia there, but Interesting. yeah, th- those are all before my time. Yeah, like is is Seth that Seth Green is the werewolf from Buffy, right? Yes, he is. Yes, okay. he is. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely before my time. I I was like a a Euro trip kid. Uh that was always cool when I was in middle school. You you'd like this one then? It's it's actually it's really good. Like it's not just like a a goofy comedy. Like I actually think this is a really fucking good movie. So right. everyone should watch it. That's awesome. what I'm leaving on. Okay. Well, I will share a couple things I watch as well. Uh, I watched a documentary called Man vs. Snake. Ooh. <laughs> uh, are either of you familiar with this? No. Nope. Okay. So Man vs. Snake is a, another video game documentary in line with like King of Kong. Um and it is about uh, a man who got a billion points in Nibbler, the arcade game. Mm. Um, and so what basically it's like it follows the same formula of like recapping the the era of like 1983 or whatever it was when he won it. And um, just like him playing for like two days straight to get a billion points and he hit it and then he won an arcade game and his life just kind of continued on with him assuming that he won this and he like never really like i don't know went back into like really hard into the video game circuit from that point forward um and then he it turns out that a guy in italy actually beat the score but it wasn't twin galaxies approved um and so now it's like it kind of bugs him in his like i don't know late 30s uh he's deep into morbid obesity and so now he's like well i want to get this i want to get this goal back and so he just like starts biking around so he can like stand up and play video games (laughs) for two days straight um and that's that's kind of the story and then there's like another guy from edmonton uh named like Dwayne johnson or something like that and he's like a vintage arcade video game player as well and he's going to try to beat the score um so you get some sweet vintage footage of this guy back in like 1983 at west edmonton mall with a trench coat uh with his like whatever band t-shirts uh being being a badass playing arcade games um and then you can see a lot of failure now with this guy trying to get break the score because he's now like obviously like an older man trying to do what like teenage boys do, which is be really, really good at video games because they have nothing but time to get really good at this stuff. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It's okay. It's like, it's just like the formula of like these documentaries now. There's been a lot of them since King of Kong. Um, this one I started hearing people saying that's like even better than King of Kong, etc. But at the end of the day, I'm kind of like, uh, it wasn't a waste of time watching it, but I don't know if there's like a lot to get out of these sort of documentaries. At the end of the 
day, uh, unless there's like some sort of competitive aspect. Because there's actually the the one I would recommend people go out of their way of watching is there's these. Uh, it's like a five part documentary series. I think it's called Smash, and it's all about like kind of the Smash Brothers uh, like tournament scene, which like is really fascinating because a lot of the documentary was just made just because these guys were all filming their own footage, um, and it all got compiled after the fact. And uh, it's actually like yeah, really fantastic. Like it presents like the competitive aspect because it's like one on one combat, and so you really get like involved with like how the game's played. Um, and I, yeah. I agree. That is a good. That is a good series. It's mostly yeah. fun. And if you played Smash Brothers, it's interesting to see how particularly uh, melee or melee, whatever you want to call it, how how fast you can play it. It's pretty. It's pretty crazy how how uh, frame perfect. <laughs> You can. Uh, some people can get with that game, and how far they try and manipulate the uh, the mechanics of the game and stuff like that. It's pretty. It's a pretty good watch. They. It's like all hype. It's all hype, which, but in a good way. Like any good sports doc, or the good that kind of good hype doc. Anyways, I also like uh, the same. It reminds me of the Order of Ecstasy, the Tetris doc. Yes, which I thought was pretty okay too. Um, Ecstasy of Order. That's Ecstasy of yeah. Order. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There we go. Yeah. Um, it has some cheese in there for sure, but it was, I thought that was pretty decent. But yeah, um, no, that's like, yeah, that's like my number two pick, I think, for uh, video game documentaries. Uh, that one I like a lot too, because again, like it has like that uh, kind of a tournament sequence, so you actually get like kind of led into it, and the rules of the game are explained, and you can follow along, and you're just like watching like a thirty for thirty sports documentary, but it's all made just by like casual fans that are like that, like hey, let's put a documentary together. And they decided to put a tournament together and set up the sequence. And uh, you get, like, interesting characters, relatable people who are just, like, really into games. And that's, like, about it. And uh, mm. their attempts to, I don't know, hit that high level and be, like, the best player around kind of thing. It's really, uh, yeah, it's always, like, the same stories, too, of these, like, one-time great players or whatever from, like, this bygone era, the, the 80s, in the, the era of, like, VHS and, like, yeah, of when, like, arcade games were played in malls and stuff, and you get all that awesome footage. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I, that was uh, decent. It's just on Netflix in Canada. Um, yeah. And I also watched, because uh, it was Friday the 13th this past Friday, I Ooh. continued my rewatch of Friday the 13th movies, uh, continuing where I left off, watching this uh, time out part four, the final chapter. Um, and the one thing I'm actually continuously surprised by with the Friday, the 13th movies is like how good, like how surprisingly good they are. And like, they're really well shot. Like they have like way more sophisticated, like cinematography and like layouts than you'd expect. Um, cause like the first movie is definitely the weakest in the first four. Um, two is really good. Three's pretty good. And then mm-hmm. four, I think like, uh, just is a good capper almost to like, you wouldn't have to really go beyond that because five's terrible. And then six, seven, eight, they're kind of like off in their own, uh, space. But, uh, four has, uh, one Corey Feldman, uh, a young Corey yeah. Feldman <laughs> and, uh, a bunch of other fellows like Crispin Glover, um, mm-hmm. who actually is like super like, uh, like, I don't know. This movie's got like the best batch of like teenage kids, like of the the horny teenagers. They're actually all like really fully realized characters, and like you kind of feel shitty when they are going to get butchered and killed. Um, unlike the usual way that these like backwoods slasher movies are supposed to go. Um, and like Jason actually is like really frightening. He has you don't really see him for a lot of the movie, and when he mm-hmm. does show up, he's just like unstoppable um and he just like shows up he's blasting through doors he's just uh murdering people horrifically there's like the one bit that like i don't remember at all from uh 
when I watched these initially when I was like in great, like whatever, 12 years old, um, like he uh, kind of like crucifies uh, Crispin Glover's like hands into the door frame of the uh-huh. house, kind of preventing people to run through the wall. So the kid, so the one woman, she has to kind of like, I think she like either goes through a window or she runs between his legs. But when it comes to Jason having to go through this door where he set up Crispin Glover as a block, he just casually kind of rips him down and his hands just tear through the like the bolts that he's bolted him into the door frame with and it's just like oh that's pretty brutal yeah it's it's uh yeah that's one thing i was i I agree with your rankings on all those but uh when i watched the first four i was like super surprised at like the brutality of some of his kills too like there's that one where the dude's doing the splits and he just cuts them in half right by the dick <laughs> or like uh he squishes that one dude's head like it's 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 pretty fucking gnarly i didn't think it would be like that because i had never seen those actually until about a year ago and i was like whoa yeah there's the, there's another kill too i think it's in the second one that i was like really like what the fuck because like i remember i remember watching these on tape and maybe they were slightly edited or something or i just didn't like put stuff together properly when i was 12 but uh there's the scene where like the guy in the wheelchair is at the top of the <laughs> staircase yeah and he just gets a cleaver right to the face and then he goes because of the force of the strike he goes flying back and then he goes down the steps and so you have this like dummy or whatever it's strapped inside of a wheelchair going down this like two three story stack of steps and it's just rattling down with this cleaver in the rain and it's just like wow <laughs> like like this is like good stuff like for like slasher movies um like mm-hmm. i think they really surprisingly did set a high level because like the cliche always is with like these horror franchise movies is that well the first one's good and then they just got worse over time but like i think like compared to like even like nightmare on elm street which is probably the next like most beloved of these like horror franchise from the 80s um mm-hmm. uh, like nightmares like batting average isn't as good as at all like the first one's really good uh the second one's like a weird mess of a movie and then mm-hmm. the third one's good and then the yep. fourth one's a huge step down and then they just get gradually worse whereas friday the 13th two three four they make a pretty good trilogy mm-hmm. okay. I, I should watch them um they sound pretty interesting they sound like i'd rather do that than like watch the fast and furious movies oh yeah oh yeah yeah because <laughs> i still have not seen those i've seen tokyo drift oh, on man. an ipod uh, on a bus ride once. Oh. I think that's the preferred watching. Like they, yeah. they issued a statement. It's like you can see it in the theater, but it's for free on iPods because this is really how the movie was made. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, oh man, those Fats and the Furious movies. They, uh, I don't know how much of it is like ironic detachment from those, but like those movies have like way too much like attention foisted on them. I will give the the first one is like. I, I absolutely loved watching that movie in theater. I was so yeah. sucked into it. Like I like there's like a moment in there, like one of the heists. Like I forgot I was watching a movie. Like it was like one of those great like pure moments of uh like movie watching that like rarely happens. And I remember mm-hmm. being swept into it. So I was like, wow, that movie's amazing. But then trying to watch it like at home on TV, it just didn't work as well. Like the sound isn't there, the like the hugeness of the image on the screen isn't there. Um but then I I didn't I never watched two. Uh, I never saw Tokyo Drift. Uh, and then I think I saw five, whatever. I think it's Furious. And that that movie just wanted me, like, I wanted to punch mm-hmm. myself in the face. Like, it's just, like, the worst sort of, like, uh, Michael Bay-style shitty filmmaking that, like, every... Ugh, I hate it so bad. Like, it just annoyed me actively. Uh, not even... Even not even The Rock could, like, uh, charisma uh, me into it or at all. It just sucked. Not for you, yeah. And I don't think it would be for me. RJ, are you a fan of those movies? Or uh, I'm pretty or... much in line with Jared. I watched the first four. 
And I did like the first one too. I was like 12 when that first one came out. And yeah. I remember I went with, to it with my brother. And uh, my biggest takeaway was after the movie in the parking lot, every asshole was just revving the shit oh out of their shit. Oh my like, God. Their yeah. dumpy cars. Like there was a dude in like a 1984 Toyota Tercel with like the back window <laughs> bashed out. And he's like, ring, ring, like fucking trying to skid around and stuff. So that was cool. Oh, uh, yeah. Cause like, well, that movie came out yeah. like in the summer in like in this town. It's like, it's a car town. There's a strip. There's people driving up and down. There's like street wheelers. People like, there's like, uh, the one thing I didn't even know was a real thing, coal rolling of just like dudes in their fucking pickups, just hauling, they're wasting gas and they're like into this. And it's like, yeah, Fast and the Furious definitely uh, tapped into that. Yep. Because people like to drive like assholes for like a whole month after a Furious movie comes out around here. Yeah. So the moral of the story is to watch perverted kill movies instead of that. Absolutely. Yeah, that okay. makes for better people. Mm-hmm. Better people. Uh, okay. One last movie I will mention is I watched this obscure little film that uh, came out on Blu-ray uh, for the very first time uh, just last year uh, from Scream Factory called Sunny Boy from 1990. <gasps> oh, uh, shit. RJ's excited because it stars one of his favorite people in the world, one Brad Dourif, uh, who plays actually a surprisingly minor role in this Mm. one, but uh, it it stars David Carradine uh, as a, uh, it's not really ever really talked about in the movie, but I guess he's he's a trans woman uh, named Pearl, and uh, she's married to a man named Paul Else, or to a man named Slew played by Paul L. Smith, who I most famously remember him playing. Uh, he's like the gardener in the movie Pieces. So he's this like mm. giant, big Bluto-looking guy, which is fitting because he actually played Bluto in the Robert Altman Popeye movie. Um, so he's like kind of like a Tony Soprano like gangster figure in this like hamlet of a town in the middle of like New Mexico or Arizona, somewhere in the southwest. Um, and Brad Dourif's sort of a guy named Weasel. He's kind of just like their like kind of Charles Manson kind of like guy that just hangs out. He kind of like he kills people when people need to get killed. He's willing to do whatever it takes to accomplish the goals of them like i don't know stealing televisions and refrigerators and then selling them i guess to like people in the community at like low prices and they just like that's it that's their life they have no other goals but uh what happens is uh brad durup his character kills a couple for their cadillac and they're because they're moving across the country or something like that and they have a bunch of belongings in, in the back seat but he doesn't realize that there's a baby in the back seat as well and um so he comes back with the baby to their like little uh, criminal haven uh, with their trailers and stuff like that and all the stolen stuff. And but now they have a baby, and they decide to raise this baby as like basically a feral child uh, for no particular reason whatsoever. Um, this involves like horrific things, like hey, on your eighth birthday, we're just going to remove your tongue, um, so you can't talk. And we're going to raise you in a cage. And like, it's strange because, like, David Carradine's, like, Pearl, like, character, she's, like, this, like, loving mother who, like, loves the baby and dots on it. But it's, like, perfectly okay with Slew, the, like, the patriarch, just, like, being awful and, like, setting the baby on fire almost, like, and, like, doing these weird fire rituals so the child's, like, resistant to fire for no reason. Like, there's no real explanation to what this all is. Science. Science. Um so the what happens is the this feral child uh, winds up uh, kind of being used as almost like a uh, uh, enforcer for this crime family, 
Um, so like when the, the, the mayor steps out of the line, they dispatch this uh, Sonny Boy is the character's name uh, to like take care of him. And he's a cannibal man now. Yeah. And <laughs> I don't know, like it's just like there's no way of describing this movie. And there's like no way of classifying this thing either. Because it like at times it's like like the scene where they take this child on his birthday to like cut out its tongue. It like comes out of nowhere. Like you really don't know what's coming. So it's like really like uh, it's silencing. Like everyone just went. Everyone I was watching with uh, Lawrence and Corey, we were just like quiet. Like what the fuck was that? And then like the movie just like it's beautifully shot. It really takes full advantage of the environment that it's in. Um, it's just it's indescribable filmmaking. Um, and then like so you get these kind of time jumps of Sunny Boy till he's like in his adulthood, and now it's like almost turns into a coming of age when he meets a girl, but he has no tongue, Aww. so he can't talk. And they're like the the crime family stuff is starting to collapse. Um, the family like the the town that this hamlet they're in, there's like an uprising. Uh, there's like a sh- scene where a deputy sheriff uh, gets completely exploded by like a like probably like whatever an eighty cal like rifle like this giant thing that like they just happen to have and you just like get this man exploding on camera right in front of you um so this movie will stick with me i think for a while um it's just so unlike anything i've come across it's kind of like what that movie greasy strangler wants to be but just fails at because they're trying hard to make a movie like sunny boy instead of just like it naturally happening as is i feel the case with this movie um which, like, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised this movie didn't really have wide distribution and not many people have seen it because it's, like, it's unmarketable. But, because, um, I mean, it kind of, like, I think I described it on Letterboxd as, like, this weird space between, like, Wild at Heart, um, which, like, came out, what, this, the same year almost, this, like, within a year or so. Um, I don't know. It's uh, odd. Brad Dourif, uh, RJ, has amazing mm-hmm. hair throughout. Uh, cause, he always cause, does. Because as time progresses, his haircut changes. Um, I I swear to God, man, I've brought it up before, but his fucking hair in movies is unbelievable. Like uh, Eyes of Laura Mars, it's so luscious. It's so nice. You just want to touch it. And in other movies, he's got like huge ponytails and fucking like like, resurrection. He's got good hair. Yeah. He's got the pone. (laughs) Yeah. Like his hair is fucking amazing in all of the movies. Just another reason why he's such a cool dude. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, I just found what I wrote. Uh, yeah, it's sort of like uh, there's this Australian movie called Bad Boy Bubby. It's very, very oh. similar to that. Uh, I was about to say, when you said Sunny Boy, I was like, is that Bad Boy Bubby? Yeah, I know. It's like, and it's like, yeah, boy too. Uh, but also like uh, like those uh, uh, Dupuis movies, uh, like Rubber and Wrong, like very like mm-hmm. off-kilter, which is, again, like kind of back to my comment about Greasy Strangler, which feels like it's trying to be like those movies as well. But there's just something off about it. Um, yeah. So, I mean, like, I'd recommend people watch Sunny Boy, but I'm not going to guarantee you that you'd like it. <laughs> but, uh, I think it's, I'm glad this movie exists because I, uh, I'm glad I live in a world where Sunny Boy happened. Sounds awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I'm into it. I'm into it, man. I, I was going to watch, I was actually going to watch that a while ago because, uh, it's on my, my Brad Dourif list, but, uh, I did not have a means to acquire said film, but. That's what you're for. That's what so. I'm here for. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and the Blu-ray looks great. Nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, before we move on to our main event, though, RJ, do you have any news you'd like to share? Any hot takes, opinions? Hot takes? I didn't, but I did just come across this one thing that's really fucked up, and it goes along with uh, some things we see in this other movie we watched today. Oh, okay. You heard of this movie, Jared, called A Dog's Purpose? 
I've seen ads for it on like uh, I think it was on Facebook yesterday on my like because I don't have ad, mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't have ad blocker on my uh, iPod. So I was noticing these ads keep popping up about a boy and his dog or something, but not like the good a boy and his dog. You know, you know what people love? Inspirational movies about animals. You know why? Because why? animals are awesome. You know what people don't love? When they find out how you make these movies. So uh, this Dog's Purpose movie is like in theaters now, I think, or coming out soon. And uh, today I saw a bunch of behind-the-scenes footage came out where they're like basically torturing this poor fucking German shepherd. Like, Because uh, there's a scene in the movie where he's like in a river, like river rapids, like saving the boy, I'm guessing. Uh, and, uh, there's a behind the scenes where the dog like really doesn't want to go in and there's just like a guy who keeps throwing the dog in the rapids. So, um, that's fucked up. Hmm. That's my news for you is, uh, <laughs> pe- people like these movies, but then it's like, Hey, you know, like to make that they have to do like, it's not all like sunshine and rainbows. So, hmm. it seems, you know, isn't the, the shtick of that movie that when the dog dies, it comes back. There is a movie like there. I I know I've seen a couple movies like that. There's one where it's like he's an army dog and he come he like saves his master and comes back. I've seen that a couple times. I'm not sure this okay. one's deal, but let's say yes, probably. Okay. I was gonna say that sounds so cynical. Like that's the one thing that yeah. people hate about those movies is it makes them cry when Marley yeah. Marley me dies or something like that. But yeah, uh, that just sounds crappy. That just sounds not fun. Yeah, what a bunch of jerks, eh? Assholes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it always makes me think of uh, that movie Milo and Otis, and that uh-huh. and, it, and it's uh, really dark snuff past that. Uh, I believe if anyone's interested, you just have to type in Milo Otis snuff film, and you'll be brought to an article uh, by Robin Bouget right talking about what the origins of that movie really are. It's not mm-hmm. a where it's like, oh no, those animals were definitely being killed and replaced during production for the sake yeah. of cinema. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, so that's 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 good. <laughs> what a great primer. Uh one thing yeah. I will throw out, I just remembered, is uh Criterion just announced their April uh, releases for mm-hmm. Blu-rays coming out in the next couple months. Uh they announced a film called Woman of the Year from 1942, directed by George Stevens. Um which I'm vaguely aware of cuz I think there's like a uh Turner classic movie four pack that's got it and like some other Catherine Hepburn movies like Philadelphia story. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's another, uh, it seems like they're digging down into the, some Warner brothers, more, uh, classic movies, which is cool. Hopefully they come across something I really, really want to see. Um, mm-hmm. Buena Vista social club directed by Vim vendors, uh, will be coming out. It's a documentary, uh, just about, uh, like, God, like it's kind of like the Cuban music scene. And then the Universal Social Club is a bit, an act. Uh, I watched this like when it came out because uh, it was like people love talking about this back in 2000. But I remember just being really boring. <laughs> like I, I couldn't care less about uh, Universal Social Club. And I don't know. I'm pretty cool on old Vim vendors in general. Um, I've never seen anything by him that's like really wowed me. I guess Paris, Texas was good. But uh, see an American friend. Oh, I don't. If I did, yeah, that's got Dennis Franz in it, right? Uh, uh Dennis Hopper and uh, Bruno Gantz and. Oh, see, I'm thinking. Um, of, I'm thinking of yeah. I'm thinking of. It's got like a pretty comfy like American Nicholas Buffalo. Ray cameo and stuff like that in it. It's okay. It's yeah, pretty good. I want to say that like maybe I did watch it, but it never really stuck with me. 
Um, Fair enough. Because I, yeah. I think I always think of American Buffalo, which has got Dennis Franz. Um, <laughs> yeah, because like, that's based on like a David Mamet screenplay. But yeah, no, say so yeah, Vin Vendors, and I don't know, uh, I've never been really hot on Wings of Desire or anything like that. Um, the other, a couple of weeks ago, Chanel, uh, a friend of hers from work lent it to her, and she like sat on it for like months and months. She tried watching it, and she just was like not impressed at all. And I was like, see, I don't know. But for some people, like people love that movie a lot, and it means a lot to them. But in vendors, meh. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's like the Peter Falk thing in that movie is a big thing for people, but I just don't, I don't understand. He's Columbo, right? Yeah. And I just never have had any exposure to Columbo. And then my one reason for watching that movie was the Nick Cave cameo. And then Assassination of Jesse James has like a better Nick Cave cameo in it, I think. So (laughs) like there's no reason for me to watch Wings of Desire for a a while, I think. But Mm -hmm. um, it's a a good looking movie. Yeah. I think. But uh, anyhow, what Uh, else is coming out? Oh, well, uh, we got uh, Tampopo uh, from 1985, directed by uh, Juzu Itami. Uh, I don't know anything about this movie, uh, but I've heard the name many times. I believe it's about food. Um, and I don't know, uh, I'll I'll probably not get, go out of my way to watch this or anything like that anytime soon, but that's cool. That's coming out in Blu-ray. Uh, it seems like people are pretty excited for it. Um, it's Japanese and I've always got a soft spot for Japanese cinema. So maybe one day. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) okay. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's like um, uh, low intensity comfort, you know. Like if you if like you just want to chill out mm-hmm. and watch a movie, that's a good like chill out movie. Really, yeah. there's no real pressure in that movie, and good gags, um, well filmed. Uh, uh, what's his name? Um, he's in the, the Gareth Edwards Godzilla and uh, Inception. Um, James Earl Jones. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, Ken Watanabe. Uh, he's pretty good. Uh, there. Uh, yeah, so it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Worth a watch. Criterion, I, it's like one of those things. It's like, sure, why not put it on Criterion? Right. Um, I guess. I guess. Uh, yeah. Well, that, that's like, well, that's more, that, that's the way I would describe the, the very last one here I've got, which is Rumblefish, uh, directed yeah. by Francis Ford Coppola from 1983. Um, uh-huh. I, I just remember this movie being in like $5 bins uh, on DVD for years and years and years. Um, and I never watched it. I just like had no interest in it. But then, uh, last year, uh, when I was laid up in the hospital, I think I had it on a hard drive somewhere and I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, this is the perfect time to watch something like Rumblefish. I had no idea. It was entirely shot in black and white. Um, I, I didn't know anything about it, but I don't know. I watched it only like a year ago and like, I was kind of like pretty underwhelmed mm-hmm. by it. Um, so I'm not excited about this whatsoever, which, uh, when we get to spine 869, uh, I guess we'll, I'll have to rewatch it, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. And it's got a really kind of lousy, uh, cover too. It's like this, mm-hmm. uh, it's terrible. <laughs> I'd, uh, I'd take the outsiders over Rumblefish any day. See, I don't know why they didn't put that fucker in. See, I, I felt the same way about outsiders too. Cause I watched that. You're heartless. I, I am heartless. Um, but <laughs> yeah. I, cause I watched that cause it had old Tom Cruise and then I watched Rumblefish cause mm-hmm. I thought, Hey, it's the same subject matter. Maybe I'll like it more. And it's Francis Ford Coppola. But once again, I was kind of like just left not really feeling anything. And I mean, what the hell, why don't they like give, make an opportunity? Why do you put, um, Matt Dillon here on the cover and, uh, put, uh, Nicholas Cage, who's like the real main event of any mm-hmm. movie, um, and put him on the cover. Cause I mean, he's only in two criterions. And that's it. Ghost Rider 1 and 2? What's that? 
I said, uh, is you said he's only in two, and I said Ghost Rider one and two. Oh no, uh, no, he witty jokes. The Rock. Oh yeah. Rock. Uh, what's the other one? Um, there well, must be now. Now Rumblefish, and that's it. Now Rumblefish, I guess. <laughs> Until like I don't know, because I kind of thought like maybe Leaving Las Vegas would be in there. Yeah. But oh, no, no, no. no. Maybe one day adaptation will wind up in there. We can dream. Uh, a friend of mine uh, just sent me a video of Nicolas Cage buying uh, some old uh, comic books at San Diego Comic-Con because I think uh, his collection was all stolen years ago. And he was like, had a big stack of like real valuable Marvel comics, like an Incredible Hulk number one, uh, A Journey into Mystery, first appearance of Thor, first appearance of uh, Iron Man. And he was just talking with the fans. and uh, But he just looked like this, like, I don't know, this ghoul. <laughs> like. Have you ever heard about that shit? He had an action comics number one, and yeah. people fucking knew that he did, and they broke into his house and stole it. They were gonna make a movie based on that about Nicolas Cage, about him getting his comic book stolen, and about his the, the heist. The heist. That's a Criterion pick right there. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's gotta get made first. <laughs> well, maybe we'll make it. Fine. I can't see Evan, but I've heard he looks like a young Nicolas Cage. Uh, I think I could maybe do it, given the right circumstances right. and the yeah. right money. Yeah, <laughs> the right money. <laughs> yeah, I need good money to be Nicolas Cage. There you go. All right, folks. Well, I think it's time to shuffle on. Uh, so after the break, we're going to uh, contemplate existence, the meaning of Christ, and harm some animals on our way to it. Back in the USSR Well, the good way go 
And we're back. We're talking about Andrei Tarkovsky's Andrei Rublev, directed from 1966. To begin, uh, so the film is loosely a biographical historical epic telling of the 15th century Russian icon painter Andrei Rublev. Uh, The film is told in 10 parts. Uh, It begins with a prologue with a medieval retelling of the Disney film Up!, um, <laughs> a, a, involving a man building a hot air balloon. Things go horribly wrong when the locals don't take kindly to this sort of thing. Um, from there, uh, we jump into our first chapter. We join our uh, titular character, Andre, and uh, two fellow monks named Daniel and Kirill, uh, who have left the monastery to go out into the secular world to look for work. On their travels, they encounter a storm and uh find shelter in a barn with other travelers uh, where they witness a jester entertaining the masses. And we learn quickly the problem with speaking your mind in a world where authority is uh, answerable to nobody and they are willing to do whatever it is to shut you up. Chapter two, we have an exchange between one of the traveling monks uh, from before, uh, Kirill, uh, who meets with uh, Theopanes the Greek, uh, a revered icon painter in his own right. The two hit it off, and Theopanes is so excited at the prospect of having someone who can actually read to talk with uh, and invites him to become his apprentice on his next project at a monastery, I believe in Moscow. Uh, Kirill only agrees if Theopanes goes to uh, Kirill's monastery and asks him uh, in front of Andrei Rublev. Well, Theopanes follows up on this by sending a messenger to the monastery sometime later and instead of asking for Kirill he asks for Andrei Rublev Kirill is pissed about this and decides to dump this garbage monastery head out into that secular world full time and on his way out beats a dog seemingly to death for good measure chapter 3 Andre and his own apprentice Foma on the road they talk about life and art uh, there's a dead swan they happen to run across Theopanus the Greek again. And then we get Andre recounting the story of the crucifixion of Christ um, that re- eerily resembles Peter Bruegel paintings um, in the snow, which is a different place for a Christ crucifixion. Chapter four, we get pagan sex orgy, folks. Am I right? <laughs> that's that's enough, right? Ooh. Boobs. Ooh. Yep. Yep. Uh, chapter five. 
an extended home and decoration sequence of a church uh, in a town in a community called Vladimir uh, for Grand Prince Number One. Andre hasn't started on the expected Last Judgment fresco, which comes down to Andre not wanting to use his skill and craft to essentially depict imagery that is going to instill fear into worshippers. Um, uh, we get to meet the designers of this monastery, who are heading out to start work on Grand Prince Number Two's place, the brother of Number One. But Number One ain't having that, and instead of uh, sharing this talent with his brother, he deploys some goons into the woods to gouge out the eyes of the hired contractors. Because that's a sensible thing to do. Chapter Six, uh, Grand Prince Number Two is obviously pissed. And he throws in some, he sends his guys with some, uh, I think it's Tatars, Tatars, Tartar sauces to basically go and raid Vladimir while Grand Prince number one is away. And we get one of the, one long horrifying sequence of a medieval army raping and pillaging and plundering away. Um, yeah, uh, here we get some very deplorable scenes of animal cruelty. Uh, as, and Andre Rublev, uh, he gets to witness this too. He uh, has to kill a man uh, to save a kind of slow woman that is kind of it's an innocent in all this. Um, yeah, chapter seven. Uh, this is entitled The Silence. Uh, after the horrible things that he's witnessed, the, seeing these evils in the world, uh, he has sworn a vow of silence and a vow of not making work again. We get to observe life in occupation in this community now. Um, our favorite dog beater, uh, Kirill, comes back. He is destitute, has learned his lesson about living life in the secular world, i.e. it sucks. It's kind of like grad school. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of just that sequence. Oh, you get, uh, and Kirill wants back in, but he can't get back in until he starts writing out the, the Holy Scriptures out 15 times, which when you stop and think about it is insane. Chapter 8, The Bell. And sort of the the climax of the film, we get to learn the ins and outs of building a bell from scratch uh, with the son of a dead bell builder. And uh, we get to experience Andre watching this whole process and seeing a community come together to build something greater than itself. And Andre has a change of heart and he gets back down to making that art. And the epilogue of the film is a color montage, the whole film's in black and white up to this point, of the actual work of Andrei Rublev, which actually isn't that much work, as it turns out I learned after reading a little bit about him. Um, yeah. So, uh, I guess I'll talk a little bit about Tarkovsky as well. So, Andrei Tarkovsky, the director of this film, this is his second film. Uh, his uh, first feature film was a film called Ivan's Childhood. Um Tarkovsky was born in 1932. He died in 1986. Uh, he's part of a generation of Soviet filmmakers that emerged during the Khrushchev thaw years post-1956 after Khrushchev denounced Stalinism. And that saw an emergence of several prominent Russian directors in a now more liberal cultural climate. So, yeah, you could actually make a movie like Andrei Rublev um, in the 60s. Um, so the history of the film itself is the Soviet Union celebrated the 600th anniversary of the birth of the great icon painter and national hero Andrei Rublev in 1960. Um, Tarkovsky's actor friend Vasily Livinov uh, gave him the idea, who saw himself as the lead. Livinov wound up not being a part of the project in the end, but Tarkovsky pursued it, drawing up a proposal and submitting it. Um, <coughs> the script was published in the official Russian film journal uh, over the course of two issues. Because I guess, like, there was, like, he was already starting to meet resistance about making this film the way he was wanting to, based on the script. 
Um, but by publishing it in advance, it kind of made the film have to happen because the script was there. So the film was shot between April and November of 1965, at which point bad weather forced the production to close down. The remaining scenes were shot in April and May of 1966. The film was ready for release in August. Permission was granted for its release. Uh, at the time, it was known as The Passion, according to Andre, and clocked in at the 205 minutes that we watched. I just have to stop for a second because I have to get something to drink. I am so dry. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Almost the as dry un- as this movie. <laughs> oh, oh, shit. Hard yeah. burn on Tarkovsky. Oh, I'm Jared, too, I think. The unprofessionalism, far too much. Uh, oh, blow that nose. Hey, I muted it last time. I, f- I found the button. Yeah. <laughs> we were talking such shit about you. I bet. How oh. dumb you are and stuff. <laughs> that's, that's fine. Oh, that's, nice. Nice. Um, so the official film industry premiere didn't happen immediately. Uh, by November, Tarkovsky had shortened the film by 15 minutes. More cuts were asked for and Tarkovsky refused to make them. The film then kind of just lingered. Um, word of its making was spread in the West and the Venice Film Festival wanted it. But the Soviet Union film body, uh, Voskino, said it wasn't finished initially, which was true in the spring of 66 when they had asked, but the following year they were just saying it was delayed to due to technical problems. Uh, anyway, a series of fortunate events for the film happened, and eventually it was shown abroad to the apparent chagrin of some Soviet officials. Um, all plans to release the film quietly and then bury it were now impossible. The film was publicly shown at the Moscow Film Festival in July, where uh, at the, that time Vice President Brezhnev himself showed his displeasure by walking out halfway through. Um, in 1970, uh, Ingmar Bergman called it the best film he had ever seen. Um, when the film was eventually released in its 185 minute version, uh, in the Soviet Union in December, 1971, five years after the fact, uh, in the West, it was cut even further by distributors like Columbia. Uh, and yeah, so the movie kind of got released, but the 205 minute version that we watched didn't actually get released again until after his death in 1987. Um, And one other thing, I guess is speaking a bit about the Soviet film industry, which I kind of find really interesting. Um, Like every other walk of life in the Soviet Union uh, at the time, uh, it was heavily centralized. Uh, Goskino, a body founded in 1922, oversaw every aspect of filmmaking in the USSR, having final say on each stage of the production of a film, from script approval to green lighting of film's release. Uh, I mean, there's, so there's like only, there's 40 film studios in Soviet Union, but all were answerable to this one group. So if you wanted to make a movie, you had to write out your script in advance and submit it to them. Um, and Tarkovsky Studio was Moss Film, which is, uh, they have their own channel on YouTube, which is how you can actually watch the 180-minute version of this film with English subtitles completely for free. So the film yeah. is there. Uh, and yeah, the 205-minute version, there's like a story about how uh, it was like under one of the, like, someone's bed, essentially. And I guess like Martin Scorsese is the one who like found it and brought it in to get... Uh, released by Criterion inevitably but this is a film that continues to kind of languish uh, in a bad letterbox DVD that Criterion put out way back when um, and probably could use some tender love and care because um, having to watch this on my laptop kind of was annoying um, I feel like this is a movie that definitely should be watched on a big screen 
um, the whole time. Like, I kind of, like, was trying to create a thing where I had my laptop right up against my chest up to my chin and, like, put a blanket over my head so it felt like I was in the theater because <laughs> that's, that's the sort of nerd I am. Um, yeah. Did it work? Uh, it was better. It definitely uh, it definitely worked more, and it, it made me, like, less aware of the passing of time. But that all being said, Evan, um, my understanding is you've watched this movie several times, and you're a bit of a Tarkovsky fan. So, I do like Tarkovsky, so, yeah. So tell us about your thoughts, feelings uh, with this movie. This movie in particular? Yeah. It's or, about or the Tark- third time I've seen it. Okay. Uh, the last two times I've seen it have been that kind of letterbox cut, um, the the two hundred and five minute one, and uh, I watched it this time on YouTube, one hundred eighty five minute cut or thereabouts, and it was def- I don't think it even really feels all that much brisker. Hmm. If anything, it's just it's like more uh, confusing, and the theological conversations are like less in depth from what I can remember. Also, the most important part is. The fool at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Um, at one moment, he uh, he does a handstand, and his pants kind of fall down or up, and you see his ass, and yep. there's like a happy face, and that was that's removed from the 185 minute. Really? Cut. There's no reason to watch the 185 minute cut. There's no fool's butt in that, so drops. Thumbs down. Thumbs down. Mm-hmm. Um, I like it a lot. Uh, I remember the first time I watched it. It was sort of like I, I actually was given it to watch for an assignment and just kind of at that point I had seen like Doss Boat and it was like I'm going to just I'm just going to treat it like that where I'm just going to sit down and do this thing and going to just experience this because I, I enjoyed kind of watching the like the TV cut of Doss Boat as uninterrupted as possible for like full immersive possibility or whatever. And I think by the time that the uh, – um, the sequence with the bell kind of finishes. It it kind of like it really messed me up. It was pretty great for me at the time in like my undergrad year. This time, um, I think the cut of the film definitely affected my my viewing. So I was expecting maybe to really get into the conversation, uh, the like the writing. Um, but I also don't necessarily. I f- the, the the subtitles on the YouTube Moss Film channel were also like they they for me I I have no knowledge of Russian. Um, so it kind of wavered between feeling like it was coherent and then just feeling vaguely broken. So I don't know. This time the cinematography is still beautiful yeah. for me, I guess. But um, uh, it's got weird blocking the movie. I mean, I'm not really an expert in blocking or anything like that. But there's lots of little, like when uh, uh, lots of little kind of like tricky moments, uh, like when the, the fool leaves the hut at the beginning of the film. He kind of like magically and impossibly uh, comes to the top of the like the, the roof of the building, and he like falls over the the entrance of the oh, door. Yeah, yeah. And there's there's actually like a couple of different things like that in the movie. And I like there's actually like an angel in the sequence with the uh, with the crucifixion, and it's kind of hard to notice. I never noticed it before. I think because the letterbox cut is kind of like lower fidelity than the HD cut that's on uh, the YouTube thing. So that's like the one mm. the benefit of it is the picture quality is pretty decent yeah. in person. So I don't know. I mean, yeah, I could I could ramble on a lot like that. Um, I, I the general vibe that that movie gets me is is something that I appreciate, especially not knowing that 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 color sequence was coming at the the ending. First time I watched it, it felt kind of like at the end of this kind of crazy dream 
it it kind of felt like reality kind of smacking me in the face again. So um, good stuff. Uh, yeah. Okay. I like the movie quite a lot, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay. Let's get our cards on the table. RJ, mm-hmm. what did you think of Andre Rublev? Well, boys, my opinion may shock you. I thought this movie was okay. I thought it was all right. Um, I think uh, Jarrett was expecting me to full-on hate this movie, which isn't quite the case. Uh, I'm not hot on it. I'm not cold on it. Mm-hmm. I'm just in the middle. I'm pretty warm. Uh, as uh, Evan said, it looks great. Like There's some super nice shots at like stuff that fucking people today can't even get right. Like uh, In the opening, there's that scene where the guy's like walking through the building in his sweet bomb-ass jacket, and then uh, the doors open, and you just get the, the bright white light coming in, and you see his silhouette. Like, it looks fucking awesome. Uh, it looks really good. Um, I think when I watched this, and there's all these very deep monologues, I thought that I think I would prefer this story as a book. Um, the kind of theological okay, yeah, posturing yeah. that people do and stuff like that. Like, I think it's touchy in movies, and I think in this one, they do it as, as good as you could. Right. Like, it's the, like there, there's a lot of movies that try to do that, and you're just like, come on, like, just really bad stuff. Like, when I was talking about Star Trek Beyond last week, and their dialogue <laughs> is just like, death gives life meaning, and finding your meaning is life. And it's just like, all right, man, like, yeah, we get it. This movie, or this f- film, I'll call it, I thought, was, like, the way they kind of discuss these ideas and these their feeling or like what they think about religion and life and all this stuff like it's really it's really good i think it's the best that you could do it for a movie but um for me personally i think i would prefer it as like a text where i could just read it and that would get let me absorb it better digest that information a lot yeah 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 because like that's like the thing with movies is like you're kind of being drug along at the film's pace and mm-hmm. especially when you're watching something that's been translated and you're right. like kind of like having to stop and read and then like see like there's a flow going and i mean there's right. also like a conversation the movie i mean is made for like for like a russian audience i think ultimately like when that movie yeah. would have been made um so it's like really involved i think there's like a uh, there's always like that weird disconnect i think between like kind of the eastern philosophy and the western philosophy of like yes. in, 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 of this religious conversation um, I yeah and sure. so i think there's like something that's like kind of alien uh, which is going to come to my point like when i would talk about the movie a bit because yep. like i find this movie like we really weirdly unnerving the whole time oh, yeah. um yeah For sure. but continue yeah keep uh no yeah so um like my my big my big picture is yes this movie looks great uh, it's got some really cool ideas, and I like the concepts that they talk about. Uh, me personally, uh, as you put it, I think it would be easier for me to digest at my own pace mm-hmm. in like a text or something, because that's kind of how I learn stuff better. Um, so I think that would be better for me. But I mean, that's just a personal preference. So, like, I'm I'm kind of just like in the middle. But uh, I did have notes that I think, as I looked at it, I think it lines up with each uh, little chapter. Yeah. So I'll I'll just read that. Um, my uh, so each one of my notes here is for each of the eight chapters. I think 
Uh, so my first one was, you're just going to put out that fire with your bare hands because a <laughs> dude just puts out fire with his bare hands. Uh, number two, you're just going to beat that dog for no reason because uh, this guy just beats a dog for no reason. Uh, number three, you're just going to sit with your legs in an anthill because that old <laughs> fucking guy is just sitting with his legs in an anthill and you see like hundreds of ants cover following up his legs and he's like he's like wiping them off and like swatting them and it's like just move man like why why would you do that um number four you're just gonna tar that guy and send him off being dragged by that horse oh you know that's not even tar yeah because I, I didn't know what it was i, oh, I was, do you know was what, so yeah that so that scene is like that is like one of the most terrific things I've seen I think in the Criterion Collection and probably in a lot of movies because it's a it's a callback because like earlier when they're torturing the uh, that Bishop's messenger guy uh, yeah. for information um, they are they, they, he mentions like let me like kiss the cross and they're like oh yeah we'll let you but what they do is they melt down a cross. And so they oh. pour they pour molten metal down his throat, at which point, nice. then, which then you get him screaming silently and making the motions, and it's just dead silence, and then yeah. he gets struck off. Yeah, yeah, that's a that was fucking grisly. I was really like, because as you said, that's like a huge sequence of just uh, depravity, like, just horror. Yeah, yeah, it's like the greasiest goddamn horror show you ever saw, and uh, that part caught me so off guard. I was just like, what the fuck. So uh, I, I can't remember what that was. That was either four or five, but uh, grisly stuff. Mm-hmm. Number five. Hey, lady, you're just going to eat that poop from those logs? <laughs> There's a scene where this lady is just like eating all this shit from the logs. I think it's the slow lady, as you called her. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if it's dump she's eating, but it looks like it. Yeah, it's just meat. I think it's just like it's raggedy meat that the guys are oh, throwing. Oh, that they're throwing the dogs? The dogs? Yeah, that That's actually like- minds. Or sorry. Go on. Oh, go, go ahead. No, I was just gonna talk about the, the animal violence. There's the dog that <sighs> scene. It's pretty. It's pretty violent. It's intense. But yeah, um, yeah. My uh, my next note was I. This was a note me telling you guys. I'm just gonna skip this part. So uh, full disclosure, there were three times in this movie that I just jumped like five minutes ahead because I was like, uh, nope. Uh, Jared very grac- graciously gave me a timestamp for. Uh, I don't even know what it was. <laughs> I skipped it. But uh, he gave me, it was like a 45 seconds. He was like, just skip this part. So it's very nice because you've never done that before. I've always <laughs> just had to grit my teeth and or bare my teeth, grit through it. So I just skipped that part. And then the dog part I skipped too. Well, the, yeah, I mean, like, you're, you're, like when the dog gets beaten to death, like when it's like. No, not that. Oh. So it's after. So that lady's like eating that mangy meat. And it's like there's that guy uh, who's just throwing like raw meat to dogs. And the dogs were like obviously fighting. So oh. I didn't know how long it was going to go. So I just jumped two minutes ahead. I was like, I was like, if I miss anything, I'll figure it out. Um, because after last week where there was like ten, min- yeah, 10 minutes of dog fights, I was like, I, it's like, I'm good. Yeah. What, are, what the hell's up with that? Two, two criterion movies in a row. And it's like dogs is getting just the raw end, and animals <laughs> getting the raw end of the stick, man. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, I skipped that part. Full disclosure for you mm-hmm. boys. But you did watch the uh the cow on fire. Yeah, that was unmissable. Yeah. Um what, really? 
I, well, I didn't I didn't know what was coming, so I couldn't I couldn't avoid it. But uh, mm-hmm. I think Jarrett said there's a blanket on that cow. That yeah, was on there, fire, there, but uh, I mean, the, the, still the, the, on the fire. claim. Yeah, the claim is that it's an asbestos covered coat, and you can actually like I looked at it because I went back and I was like, okay, really? And I'm like, okay, I can kind of see the line of where this thing was, but it's like. Oh man, just for that shot, you don't even get a good shot of it. Like, it's like not even, I don't know, it's like kind of like unsettling, right? I mean, it's going for that vibe of like capturing the horrors of it, but that's that whole sequence, the raid is so monotonous in some ways because so many horrific things keep happening and happening and happening, but then they throw in more stuff. You're like, well, did you need this one? Did you need this one? Because, um, I don't know, RJ, do you want me to tell you, do you want me to describe the scene that you did not watch? Uh, that's up to you. Um, I mean, you gave me the time to skip yeah. it. So, uh, well, I will, uh, I'll describe it so you know what you okay. didn't see. Um, okay. so it's a scene involving a horse that's on top of a like flight of stairs, that yeah. they they then push down the flight of steps, and then the horse, because it's a gigantic horse, begins to stumble falling down the steps, and then falls mm-hmm. like onto its back for like a story, lands on its back, breaks its legs, and then we get like a pan over from the horse struggling on its back to mm-hmm. a bunch of uh, Tatars uh, just like watching this scene. So you're actually seeing these actors watching this horse crawling around off camera, and then the camera pans back toward the horse, and the horse has been trying to get back up on its legs but it can't because its legs are legit broken and then you see then you see it fall to the ground and a man comes with a spear and stabs it in the throat in the throat basically Mm -hmm. um basically what happened was when it while it was off camera it was like shot it it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter um it's like one of like the worst things i've ever seen like in like a movie like i just yeah. like i was like what the fuck like i did not know that was coming i had always heard about the cow on fire mm-hmm. um but so apparently and this this is the uh justification um sure uh, this was done to avoid the possibility of harming what was considered a lesser expendable highly priced stunt horse the horse was brought in from a slaughterhouse killed on set and then returned to the abattoir for commercial consumption. Um, because I guess like, uh, Tarkovsky had someone shoot this horse mm-hmm. before they had it going down the steps. Um, uh, I, it's like beyond like fucked. Like there's no reason that yeah. this could happen at all. Yeah. Um, it's so, like, uh, yeah. so the one interviewer, uh, suggested to Tarkovsky that the cruelty in the film is shown precisely to shock and stun the viewers. And this may even repel them may in an attempt may. to downplay the cruelty. Tarkovsky responded, no, I don't agree. This does not hinder viewer perception. Moreover, we did all this quite sensitively. I can name films that show much more cruel things compared to which our, looks quite modest and, but I mean I don't think he goes on to name anything because that's not true <laughs> like, yeah. I, I, I can't think of anything that's like uh man yeah no I think that's all horseshit anything that says it's justified to like express cruelty or like the harsh cruelty of things that's bullshit you're just trying to make an excuse for it and there's no way that the horse was shot like they may have shot it before they pushed it down but the fact that you said that it tries to get up oh, yeah, like, no. it was alive yeah, so yeah, I, that's, I don't that's remember a... a lot of those details. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I actually I forgot about the cow entirely. Honestly, yeah. is the cow uh, not it, in it's the brief? Is the cow not in the YouTube cut? As we'll call well, it. Well, that's the thing: is that the horse shot in the 
um, in the 185 cut is cut way down. It's actually yeah. very confusing. Um, mm. I never noticed. It looks like it actually was cut before the shot was started because it's bleeding quite a lot um, yeah. up mm. its neck, I think, and it's kind of spilling everywhere in a way that's pretty intense. Um, and the shot only lasts for, I think, maybe eight, ten seconds or something like that. It's very brief. And um, I completely forgot about the spearing and everything like that. Um, uh, yeah, it's just I guess those details are things that mm -hmm. I, I I really personally don't agree. Like I don't think they really. Those are the sorts of things that really don't. I yeah. In I don't, most movies, I, I don't think I can work at all. Well, I mean, like I always have like uh, this goes back to uh, some of my my wrestling viewing, but there's like always this line about like Vince McMahon would never ask a performer to do something he wasn't willing to do, and I think that could probably be applied to uh, the use of animals in a movie, where it's like, mm -hmm. would you do that to a human being? <laughs> and it's like yeah. the answer is no, I wouldn't kill a person. And it's like, well, you probably shouldn't do that to the animal either. Um, and the thing is that it's like humans can actually consent to things where animals don't can't like they're incapable they're property i guess in, mm -hmm. in the view of the law but i mean there's actual you know there is laws that dictate hey you can't do this to animals in films or mm -hmm. you're not supposed to and it's like kind of like a suggestion but we're also talking about uh, a different era in a different country so i mean there's that weird disconnect but when you're watching a movie now uh yeah i mean that can just be like that's it done and i mean i wouldn't blame somebody for just being like i'm out <laughs> on mm -hmm. that because like for even me like I thought like I mean I've watched Cannibal Holocaust several times um, and it's like that movie's messed up but this scene like I don't know maybe because I just didn't expect it maybe I'm growing soft in my old age but I was like pretty like horrified and I guess it's like that's the intent of the scene but it's like not the right kind of horrified like I mean for me having the simulation of a man being having like molten metal poured down his throat that was like horrific but no one that didn't actually have to happen it was all staged and mm -hmm. I, that, that horse scene wasn't in it but i mean there's like this like symbolism of the horse throughout the movie and i guess yeah. this is like this added aspect of the horse dying and it's like no you still didn't have to kill the horse because that's what we're talking about now and it's not about anything about themes about horses and about yeah. horses in russian culture and life and etc etc but uh, any other notes, RJ, from your numberings? Yeah, I, I do have two more. Okay. So uh, I'm, I'm glad you guys took the reins on the animal stuff. I, I know I'm a broken record for that, but yeah, I'm glad I, I'm glad I skipped it because if I had watched that, Jarrett, I probably would have stopped the movie. Yeah. So anyways, uh, I just have two more for the last two chapters. Uh, the one was sweet smelting hole under that slave camp. Because <laughs> uh, uh, if you watch this, they do have a pretty sweet smelting hole uh, under that camp of all those really uh, mal uh, malnourished Russian guys just chopping away. And then uh, my last comment, which is pretty much a summary of the whole movie. Uh, this movie, if I had to describe it in one line, it would just be uh, sad peasants doing sad shit. Yep, yeah. that's that's my <laughs> review of uh, Andre Rublev. <laughs> so. <laughs> My house breaks apart. Oh. Yeah, because of my my sweet uh, my sweet one liner. It cut. It, well, it cut right to it, right there. Yeah. Like the foundation. Yeah. So uh, yeah, that's my take. Okay. Um. So my notes follow as this movie is very wide. Um. Just like every shot in this movie is like takes full advantage of its. I don't even know what scope this is. 
Um, I don't know if you know off the hand, Evan, but no. uh, it's just like amazing. Like this movie takes full advantage at all times of its um, of every. Uh, sure. I, yeah. yeah, like it looks incredible. Um, and like uh, when you were talking about like blocking and like even just composition, like everything is like laid out in such a like particular way that like every shot you could just take a still out of it and be like, yep, that could go on a wall. Like it's like that that kind of like really amazing attention to. Uh, where characters are. Um, I agree. Yeah. yeah. It just, it looks amazing. Um, and then like, but there's also something like uh, weirdly unnerving about everything in this movie. Like every scene, like it feels like I, I, it's like welcoming me into the frame and into like the space. And it's like this horrible place. Like it's the medieval world. And like, I kept thinking about seventh seal watching this movie. And I was really thinking like, Oh yeah. no wonder Ingmar Bergman like loves this movie. Like, cause it's kind of like the movies that he was making, but like he, I don't think he was he ever got to this scale of movie making like because if like Seven Seals like a fairly small tidy little movie, um, but it never really gets to like the scope I think of this movie, um, just in terms of like just uh, like budget or something like that because I don't know I think I think Big Bergman's movies are uh, the ones that I've seen at least I think they're better than this one, but uh, I can definitely see why Bergman would be totally drawn to the subject matter. Um, in this place because I mean uh, he visited the medieval era many times because it's like really great work for like these questions of like humanity and like living in like the shits like being like having being peasants and living in a horrible world and like the only thing that you have in your life to ground you in your day-to-day existence is the church and so this is a movie about basically that kind of scale up from peasantry kind of like concocting those images and I mean Seventh Seal too I mean there's like that whole sequence of like the um when Max von Sydow's character is at the church at the monastery there. And the one there's like the mural painter talking about like painting these imageries of death and frightening people. And it's like completely carries over right into Andrei Rublev. And I'm really, I'm kind of curious, like how much, uh, of the, of like say some seal, uh, Tarkovsky was able to watch while he was in film school, uh, oh, like in the fifties. Yeah. Cause like I watched, I watched, uh, Tarkovsky's first student film, um, the killers. Like that. What's that? Oh, the killers! Oh no, I thought there's a steamroller one. Yeah, that, that's his third thing that he did. His very first student film, though, is the Killers, which is on the uh, Killers Criterion Collection. It's like a 25 minute thing. I think you can find it online too. And I mean, it's super like American noir influenced, uh, but it's kind of like funny because it's that geeky film school thing where like you want to film a movie of dudes in fedoras and being tough, but all you know are like guys who are like 22 and like, so they look like just kids wearing these big hats and jackets and they're being tough. Um, but like I was watching, I was like, I wonder like how much like film noir Tarkovsky would have been able to see, uh, in like Soviet Russia. Like, I'm not sure like what the flow of, uh, film was like. I don't think it's as oppressive as like, uh, a 1950s America would lead us to believe it was like, I'm pretty sure that they wanted to like make the best stuff. So they were watching art and film and stuff like that to a certain degree at least to their own like socialist ends but uh i mean i'm sure that they were aware of world cinema be it american or uh, swedish because i can i can't imagine uh tarkovsky making this movie not knowing about seven seal because there's so many little things that are touched upon um just like the like the all like the jester characters and stuff but maybe it's just medieval tropes that uh are more universal than i I'm aware of. Um, I'll paraphrase badly, but there is like a, a Tarkovsky quote uh, that goes something along the lines of the only two people that I care about, like their opinions on my movie are like Ingmar Bergman and like Robert Brisson. Oh, so yeah. I'm, I, I'm probably badly paraphrasing that. I don't know when he said that, but yeah. he definitely was an admirer of, of uh, Bergman. Yeah. Yeah. So 
if the shoe fits, the shoe fits, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So there's like, yeah, I guess going to like that weird, like that alien feeling watching this movie. I mean, it also feels like there's like a real surrealism to this movie um, that I think probably made like the, the communist party, like kind of have its back up to it. Cause you get the scene where like after that, uh, right in the prologue, when the uh, hot air balloon crashes with the man and you cut to that horse rolling around on the, in the, on its back, um, mm. and then getting right back up, uh, in this symbolic sort of gesture. But like, I was just like, Oh, like all this like photography in it. Like there's something about like surrealist art usually finds itself in sort of these minimalist back drops like they're usually in just like these empty fields of like roving hills like there's not a lot of like something there to like distract you from um it's because it's just about these weird characters moving around like a beckett play or something like that um like where it's like absurdist sort of thing um mm. i don't know uh so yeah um, here's my note seven seals russian cousin <laughs> um yeah, but I, I imagine this movie is like a, sort of like the the granddad to stuff like uh, Bella Tarr's movies, like Workmeister Harmonies, and yeah, something definitely. and like Hard to Be a God, like these huge black and white momentous movies that um, like are just like about ideas, like real hard ideas, um, mm-hmm. and like kind of like the characters are like it's not about characters, it's kind of not really about the story, but it's about just these like big moments, uh, like over the course of like. Two, two to three hours like they're always long movies they're black and white like they're very austere serious uh like these things that we typify as like eastern european or whatever um like this movie seems to like started that but like it's kind of strange because like having seen a few other uh tarkovsky movies i find this movie very different um yes, from yeah. those like like there's a big difference between this and solaris um because like solaris and stalker kind of occupy a far more similar space that i think mm-hmm. uh people will like a lot more because i think this movie kind of like i'm surprised how well regarded this movie is because i can't imagine like a lot of people being super big fans of it like i'm like i'm on i don't know i'm not that far off from rj with this movie like i don't know if i i don't love it um mm-hmm. but i mean I'll, I'll think about this movie a lot like just because that's uh, why I've come back to it is there's it's like a especially when you watch a lot of these kinds of uh, for me and I haven't I'm not the most uh, uh, comprehensive viewer of like festival films um, or films by people like Belatar or whatever but uh, uh, you, you do feel stylistic influence um, from people like Tarkovsky kind of sprinkled around a lot um, and then if you watch a lot of movies beforehand, like, I mean, that's one thing I think you're saying the scope of the production of something like Seventh Seal um, might not have had enough money. I think it's also just yeah. the, it's a very different intent. Like, and I think that's what makes Tarkovsky movies very interesting for me to watch is they have very specific and sort of ambiguous intent. It, and, it's, and that's the, the tension between how specific it is and how... Um, open they really are especially i think the 70s stuff stuff like solaris and stalker especially basically from like the mirror stalker onwards and then get into like the 80s stuff and stuff it gets pretty loose like very loose and uh pretty open to interpretation in a way that's that's i find to be really exciting to, to see especially because they are photographed pretty much like no other no other movies the, the quality of movement i know some people complain about movies like children of men and they say that there's no need to have these kinds of excessive or gravity these kinds of excessive tracking shots that uh or rope i guess you could uh you could throw in there too the hitchcock movie russian arc. Kind of, 
Yeah, <laughs> or Russian Arc, yeah, like these technical show-off movies, and I think they, it just, I don't know, I just have got to have a little bit more faith in like the, the directors just trying to do it, you know, for the sake of doing it, and that's that's not a great argument, obviously. I think it definitely can feel indulgent at times, but um, I, I don't feel like it is indulgent in Tarkovsky at the very least. I, I heard this thing that he would edit according to the tension of time in a shot, which I don't. It, it sounds ambiguous, but it's just kind of like you you have you shoot with this style, and then you when, when you're editing, you feel you feel the pressure building in in it according to how much is happening in the frame, I guess. I, hmm. I'm not sure. I think, to me, that doesn't sound like unique, though. That seems like I think most good directors probably edit the same way. Maybe it was just articulated that way when talking about him. Because it feels like, to me, like there's like a natural pacing, I think. like There's like a, a natural feeling when you're watching a movie that like you know that there should be a cut here. And like you, mm-hmm. you know when they miss that moment, you're like, why isn't this cut away yet? <laughs> and then like either like it's like it's, it's so good that you never think about it or it brings attention to itself or it's badly edited. And the only time you ever, I mean, the, the, the cliche is that you don't notice editing until it's bad editing. It's kind of like sound design or music too like where it's like mm-hmm. you don't notice those are happening until they bring attention to themselves and usually for the wrong reasons um or until like, you start like unless you start looking for it specifically um like then there's like really great examples of it and you're like wow look at this like look because people don't usually go man that sound design other than you probably evan <laughs> you're just, i think you're the uh, one of the few people that will be like yeah the sound design's like really good like off the bat before you talk about anything else um <laughs> but like i think most people it's like yeah you would they don't even know like other than they know like a shot like that for me was like when I first started like watching movies in a closer way I would notice that like why why didn't why is this shot holding why are we still looking at I don't know this person like it should have cut away already this scene's going on too long it's going on too long what the hell's going on and it's like not in a good way we are like it's building tension in itself uh but anyway sorry uh, that was just like I don't know so I mean the Tarkovsky stuff it's like yeah I mean I don't think he, he doesn't have like a lot of super tense editing his stuff seems to be like scene setups particularly when uh with something like Stalker where it's just like long takes and so the movie feels like three times longer just because it's long takes um but and loose like, structure as well yeah um, yeah because yeah. it's like it, there's no rush there's no rush to get to the the plot right it's just about building scenes up and I think that's maybe why the thing with the Tarkovsky thing with the tension in the shots, it, it's, it makes more sense in the context of stuff like The Mirror or Stalker or something like The Sacrifice. Um, some of it's like really specific. Like apparently the, the, the shot of the house burning at the end of Sacrifice is this crazy shot of this house burning. Um, uh, it was like very highly timed out down to like the second. There's that and then there's this, this kind of, I don't know. I, I don't believe in the the, the thing of uh, like I said I'm a little bit wishy washy with films. I don't know if, know if I necessarily believe in in that thing about what Tarkovsky says apparently or apparently uh, of uh, editing to the tension point. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it makes more sense though in something like Stalker because there is some there's some really really loose stuff in that movie and it, it feels it it doesn't feel inappropriate for me like it, it suits the movie quite a lot and I think the reason why it's justified in terms of its feeling is. In part due to the the tension of the editing, and maybe tension is not the right word for it, but the the timing, you know, and the attention to it, I guess. But um, yeah. Uh, so, how would you place uh, Andre Rublev in that 
trajectory of where Tarkovsky's going? Like, where do you see like things carrying Uh-oh. over? I can't remember. I think Solaris comes next. I can't remember 100% in terms of, like, the chronology of someone like Kubrick for me is very clear. Sure. Uh, uh, I think if you see Ivan's Childhood, which I would recommend, if you thought this was, like, pretty interesting, I think Ivan's Childhood would be up your alley for sure. Mm -hmm. It's more, it's more, um, it's more movie-like in the old school way where there's moments where things happen, um, that they their gestures of action between characters um, combined with lighting and movement and and sound in a way that's it's very elegant. Yes. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it it's far lot, more of a movie. Yeah. Yeah, it actually feels a lot more like a Kurosawa film. Yes. Uh, that's, and yeah. I, I would say that this that's one thing about this film that's interesting is that it really I think there's some things in Ivan's Childhood that feel pretty cool and and unique, but I think this is the first one that feels full on Tarkovsky for me. At times, there's there's moments like um, the crucifixion scene has a bit of that in terms of its uh, it's I, it's surprising when it comes. It's unexpected. I mean, right? Uh, uh, it's unexplained. It's dreamy, but in a concrete way. Uh, it's not like a like a Bunuel dream scene where it's almost like a joke. Um, it 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 is more painterly, which sounds kind of faffy, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, there's stuff like that, and then also when when they are uh, when they're lifting the bell like that, there's no. It's like old school epic filmmaking in the sense where you've got like thousands of people on screen at once. Um, well, and, I, was, uh, I was really thinking about uh, my one note was like uh, Herzog's Fritz Caraldo, just oh, like yes, that but... whole process, like because you feel the weight of everything, like you feel the process happening, and like they actually are doing this, like they're they're not. This isn't movie magic. This isn't matte paintings. This is like no, we actually have to get this bell up and and levied, and like you get the, and it's all using like the. It, it appears to use like the technology of the period depicted. It's like it feels like it's fourteen hundreds. Um, and you get to experience it all. And yeah. mm, I saw a crane uh, yeah. drive in just in the side for a second. They didn't edit it out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Tarkovsky, so sloppy. Yeah. Shyster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, something like Mirror is, I, I think, maybe stylistically is most interesting because it incorporates things like found footage. Um, and it's a nice balance of use of things like uh, autobiography as well. Um, as and, and also there's a higher degree of kind of ambiguous um, setups and scenes that play off of each other. In, in, and it's also a combination of like some of the best cinematography. Like when it's combined with, um, it's hard, there's like an intimacy. The grandeur brought to, of those kinds of camera movements brought to this intimate movie scene, that's what's, one of the things that's so beautiful about it because it's, it's because it's a memory movie, and um, it's one of those things. It's like I don't know, like uh, someone like Denis Villeneuve tries to do, where they become like puzzle box movies about you know being inside of someone's headspace or something, and they're fine. They're they're fine movies, but the 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 openness of a movie like Mirror feels more honest to me to like the ambiguity of memory, which sound like once again sounds faffy, but like. Uh, that's why why I come back to these movies is that there's there's stuff in some other kind of like self-serious films that that just like I don't really care, you know. And then when I think about my own life and 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 the things that really make me sad, like knowing people who have lost their memories or um, 
when the, 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 the tension of someone being dead and then being out of your life. Uh, something like an Andrei Tarkovsky movie does that more for me. Like I said, it's a bit self-serious, but um, compared to a lot of other films, it doesn't... Uh, like, I don't even go to uh, Scorsese for that, really. I, it's and uh, Or anything like that, you know. There's different things that those movies do for me, personally, anyway. So that's why I come back to him over and over again. RJ, so, oh, so uh, RJ, what, what, how do you feel about your first Tarkovsky? Nah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like I said, like, like uh, it looks good, and I like what they're talking about. I'm just, uh, if you feel like you should be reading this as a book, well, like I found, yeah. like, because I, I found when I was watching it, I found that actually reading like the Wikipedia, like breakdown of everything helped yeah. a little bit because there's times where it was like especially like your three like characters your three monks they look similar enough mm-hmm. and they're not like oh it's tom cruise as andre <laughs> rubov it's not like they're like these actors that jump out and are distinct looking because like initially when uh uh kirill is talking to the um the Greek monk. Uh, I, I thought that was Andre Rublev lying for some reason. Like I, my scene was like, is he pretending to not be Andre Rublev to have an honest conversation? Um, like that's that was my first initial reading because mm-hmm. at that point I had no idea what he actually looked like and I knew the movie was titled this but then I started realizing of course afterwards that this movie is like like Andre Rublev sort of like not even like the main character like he's like not yeah. he's not in a lot of the movie uh, which isn't mm-hmm. it doesn't matter to me one way or another um, and it wasn't it's not like a biopic um, but yeah, yeah. Like, like I said like I I'm glad I finally have watched it, but I I think like Ivan's childhood, Ivan's childhood, I definitely liked more because probably because it's a bit more conventional. It's like a war movie, um, but I mean it's kind of neat, kind of coming between this and Andrei Tarkovsky as uh, Rublev. Um, there's like there's there's like the other Russian films that I've watched, like something like Come and See, and there's like <laughs> reference and there's references in that to this. Um, yeah. And then like something like I think it's V V I Y, which is like the first like Soviet horror film. Yeah, and again, a- but again, it's like peasant life. Like it's these like uh, constantly these like it's all about the people. I guess like I mean that's like a that it's obvious saying it out loud. That's like a driving force of of um, because, I mean, like, you wanted to depict the life of, like, the peasants being shitty because, like, it's under that of a – of the, the the grand princes of of the old school that, like, were, were murdered and killed and taken out because everyone needs to be created equal. I mean, that's, like, uh, probably how the film got sold to the party at the time. But at the same time, it's about an artist who is making their work under an oppressive re- regime <laughs> at the end of the day. So, I mean, the film is mm. kind of in itself subversive. Um, because, and that's why this movie was probably a resistance to it because they weren't sure they, they, these guys might've seen that. And then they'd be like, Oh, I don't know if he's like smarter than us or if we're just seeing things, we're giving him too much credit. I I think the other thing too, is like the most populistically uplifting scene is they, they finish making the bell and, and then everyone just kind of leaves, you know, I, I, yeah, because, I don't know, it's not really a crowd movie either. No. <laughs> I never noticed it until I watched this movie, but in the final scene, the fool from the beginning of the movie, yeah. he, show, he shows his ass, and then he and he makes fun of the, oppress- the, the oppressors, and he gets dragged off to jail. And I always thought that he died, and then um, he actually shows up at the end of the yeah. movie, 
I, t- I never noticed that until this time, uh, this viewing. Um, and then also the, uh, the, the, the God's fool woman, like the, the, the slow woman or whatever. Yeah, the, the, the simpleton, yeah. And I, and it's, I, I get, I get why they're there. I think it's supposed to just kind of tie the movie into a bit more of a knot, but it, I don't think it really connects in the way that it could if it was a more obvious sort of set of gestures or right. whatever. Well, yeah, so. I mean, like, I'd say, like, yeah, there's, like, a lot of things in the movie. Considering it's, like, stature is, like, one of the great films. I was, like, during the raid scene, I, I never felt, like, the intensity that that's, that, that should have. I, I should have felt in me like I compare mm-hmm. it to like in in come and see the kind of the equivalent to the raid scene in that when the Nazis show up that's like one of the most like intense horrific things I've seen in a movie like it's so like wild and out of control and you're like oh my god like no one's going to survive this and like the raid never really hits those it has some like amazing visuals but then it relies on killing a horse and setting a cow on fire and yeah. like and then like oh we're going to simulate uh, pouring molten metal down this guy's throat and you get those sort of scenes and then like rape and plunder mm-hmm. off camera like t- typical movie whereas like you know uh, uh, over a decade later Come and See comes out and they do like it's or 20 years later uh, and they, they, they do like that scene and it's just like so for, so much more uh, visceral and those scenes that like don't quite pay off or, like with callbacks with characters coming back um, like with the jester and actually one thing I've, I'll mention too is like a, the scene with the jester at the beginning uh, I really like they kind of show like how effortless the jester's job is and like how he's like doing this stuff it's like lowbrow stupid but everyone's into it but then like this drunken asshole he starts trying to do the same gimmick and everyone's like bored with it. They're not laughing because there's like kind of like there's a sort of this like there's a subtle thing about like the artistry of being even like a jackass. And like mm-hmm. you, you, have yeah, to be, you, have, you have to be good at your craft. You can't just like not anyone can just pick it up, which I guess like you could tie back maybe into this idea of like the artist or whatever. Like there's a like, craft in even being uh, yeah, a jester um, and like not anyone can just do it. Um, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit for me. It's a lot of I don't know. I remember just watching it. it. It gave me a buzz watching it, but it's another one of those things where I can never. It's like RJ. Have you heard of that Come and See movie? I have. Yeah, yeah. I've heard. Um, I, I'll watch it one day, but uh, I'm a little um, intimidated by it. It sounds pretty uh, raw. It, it, yeah. Raw. It's it's long. It's like it's a solid movie. Um, like it is like it kicks your ass. It's not like. It's not as brutal as, like, I guess you could be led to believe it is. But, I mean, it's like a movie. It's like it's a war movie that really captures the awfulness of war in a way that, like, most mm-hmm. movies fail to. Like, it's a real horror. It's like a horror war movie. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, come and see. Like, I've only ever watched it once. And it's like, man, that movie. Yeah. But what hit me with a rewatch of Come and See was the Nazis are, are very cartoonish. Yes. Uh, and, and I think just to compare that to Andre Rublev, the, the Tartars don't feel so, uh, one dimensional, uh, they're, they feel out of place, but they also have a sort of personality to them. That's, it doesn't feel as cartoonish to me. I mean, I, it's hard for me to really articulate why I feel that it's mostly just like a gut level reaction to it. But like you come and see, they like pick their teeth with knives and stuff like that. Like the SS officer has like a yeah. weird key pet, like some evil Bond villain thing or something. It's pretty wild, yeah. well, but yeah. it's also like really raw. I, yeah. I kind, of, I kind of, but I see. I would link that into like sort of like uh, we've had conversations before about like Zulowski movies, where it's oh, not yes, so much yeah. about like literally depicting things as they are, but like kind of picking, like taking or showing this like the psychological space of like the Nazis, like where it's like it's cartoonish, but it's like how do you depict this evil? 
and like make it like really like relatable on a screen and it's like making people as uneasy as possible and so like you're depicting them in this like outlandish way that's like way more like I have no idea what's going to happen next because it, suddenly the rules of reality have been thrown out and suddenly the, and that's like the thing like under the Nazis the reality was thrown out for like a decade like no one knew what was going to happen next to them like and it was unbelievable and I think that's like what that movie captures really well in that like final act where it's just like I don't know what's going to happen next whereas in Andre Rublev it doesn't go for that like it's like it's not doing that's a completely different type of movie um i think it's more fatalistic it's kind of like it doesn't it doesn't really get involved i mean there's like that's kind of the joke at the end of seven seal too is like they're all dead now um right and i think if anything that's mm-hmm. like maybe where barry linden gets its cue for tone is something like andre rublev where hmm. it's just like they're just kind of just it doesn't really matter that andre rublev is um doesn't have like he doesn't have a huge there's not a, a big thing in the movie about him being romantically involved with anyone like it's a part of his life that he's kind of around these women occasionally but it's not really no like, there's no conversations about romance or anything like that they're just and it doesn't really matter and it's just kind of uh, like the textures of life I guess I yeah I yeah. I, I, yeah. Ramble, ramble. <laughs> ramble, ramble. But hey, guess what? Guess we're mm. going to find out who hates this movie from Ooh. our good friends on Letterboxd and the lowest oh. ratings of Andre Rublev there. Nice. <laughs> so from Injun, who gave this film half a star, uh, he watched this for the 2016 movie challenge for in July, the Soviet Union. Uh, number 17, a hot air balloon, naked people, and a bell. Not much to say about a movie in which a bell gets more screen time than the protagonist, except that it was painfully long, excruciatingly boring, overly verbose, and contained a few horrific scenes of animal cruelty. There you go. Now, uh, mm-hmm. we have uh, from A Small Pony, Half a Star. Ooh. At no point in the hours I spent watching this did I care about anything that happened to anyone in it. I was just watching <laughs> events, and I could not understand why anything mattered to anyone. Yeah. I suspect that this was not entirely the point of the film either, so it doesn't even win points for execution of a theme. I wish I could pretend my boring work was banned for any reason other than being what it is. Mm. Mm-hmm. I uh, I kind of sympathize with this review a little bit. Okay. There, there were times where I was like, I don't know what I'm watching. <laughs> I don't know why I should care. Mm-hmm. I, I guess you know, that's another whatever. thing to admit with Tarkovsky. Rewatching them is honestly like, uh, there's a lot of stuff in Solaris, like when I rewatched that movie. And that's like one of the more straightforward ones that I just completely forget. Like a lot of scenes, like the last time I rewatched it, it was like, oh yeah, like this whole chunk of this movie, I just completely forgot about. Um, rewatching this movie, like it becomes more coherent with time. And, mm-hmm. but yeah. I should say also sometimes I think the cringier reviews are the five star reviews for movies. <laughs> yeah, where they try and like really like blow air up their own butts for getting it or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, one more here. Uh, this one's a little lengthy. Uh, one and a half star uh, by Pus. Pulcinella? Pulcinella? Uh Andre Rublev is a 60s biopic, which I, I saved it just because I love referring to this movie as a biopic, of the titular medieval iconographer directed by Andre Tarkovsky. The movie's strong religious thematic makes it a wonder what it he was even made in the Soviet Union in the first place, but it was screened only outside of Russia for quite a blah, blah, blah. Um, and about some sexual scenes and depictions of animal treatment. Okay. Um... 
Tarkovsky has always been hit or miss for me, but Andrei Rublev, Andrei Rublev is such a catastrophic failure of a film that mm. I find the high praise for it absolutely flummoxing. The biography of a medieval icon painter has some of the worst qualities a film can have. An artificially prolonged runtime filled with loads of tedious and pointless scenes, similar characters who are easy to confuse. Also, I love how the camera is often positioned behind them so you can have no clue who's talking, and a clumsy character development. The atmosphere is nothing like in Tarkovsky's other works. Here, things are happening on screen, but it's impossible to care for any of it. There's just nothing to grab your interest, and to top it off, the pacing is terrible. Usually, the dialogue in Tarkovsky's films never match the power of his images, but here, the dialogues are so painfully bland and disengaging that it just makes the film even more tedious to sit through. Everything this movie has to say about artistic growth and creativity is single-handedly made irrelevant by the fact that it fails on every possible aspect except for the impressive black-and-white photography. And they go on for a bit more. Um, then the they movie go on as long as this movie does. Oh, then the Smile. movie fails at being thought-provoking. To make a viewer think, you need to make him engage in what's going on in the film. To do that, you have to make the film interesting. From the beginning onwards, there's rarely a scene to catch your attention, and the characters' introductions felt all wrong. The pacing is nothing like in Stalker or even uh, Zerkalo. As the mirror, I think. Oh, okay. Here, yeah. almost every scene feels inconsequential, and so much, so much can be cut from the film to make it better. I don't, I don't know. I don't see what you could cut. Like, I honestly think back on the movie, and it's like the movie is exactly what it needs to be. Like, I don't know what you would cut out. Like, mm-hmm. and nothing feels too long. Like, I don't know. It's a strange movie. It is long, um, but I don't know. I never felt it was like... Because of like, oh, it's excessive. Like it's just like no, every scene's there. You can question what the purpose of scenes are, but you, I would never say like, oh, you could lose that. Like it's kind of like no, it's mm-hmm. it's all decided. It's all like intentional. <laughs> it's not an accidental bad movie that was like thoughtlessly put together. Mm-hmm. Anyway, some people don't like this movie. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I guess I yeah. I really honestly feel like there's not that many movies like this from the time period. I, I, it's like would the same person give a movie like Soy Cuba, which is like a like a Cuban uh, sort of like social realist film? I've never seen it, uh, so me bringing it up is kind of bullshit. But like, uh, like would the same person just rate that higher? I don't like the star rating system. It doesn't make any sense to me on so many levels because it's just it comes down to hyper subjective kind of like trying to prove points about, like, you know enough about Tarkovsky to say that it is a half-star movie or something? Like, what does that even really mean? Like, the fact that somebody kept it under their bed for decades? (laughs) At least one human being was like, I need to store this, and it's going to be under where I I sleep for a third of my life? I I don't know. uh, Yeah. There's always this thing, though, people, like, get really mad when they're, like, told this is one of the greatest films ever made, and they go in kind of wanting to hate something, and if there's, like, any reason for them not to like it, and if it goes against the grain of, like, everything they kind of like in movies, then they're just going to have a heyday talking about, I hate this movie, what a waste of my life, I hate Citizen Mm -hmm. Kane, but, like, that's how, like, some people go in, they're just, like, setting themselves up to dislike things. Um, and it's kind of like a, I assume that like I can guess the age of a lot of people um, being letterbox, social media. They're probably all people in their like early, te- like late teens, early twenties that like have something to prove. There's a lot of, there's some, like something to show and like, I know better than people who watch movies and they're wrong. You should all watch Moonlight instead. Like that's kind of a, like they're, they're about modern movies and they can't imagine anything else than that. 
But I don't know. That's like this mm-hmm. in the star system for me. I, I use it as like kind of like uh, a recommendation system. Like I try to use it as like this person likes these sort of movies, and now I can tell that this person likes these type of movies strongly. And if I That's also fair. and if I also like those, it's it's a it signals to me what they're into and they're like oh if they like all these movies that i like a lot and they like these five movies i've never seen giving them five stars those are five movies i could take under recommendation for me to seek out and go out of my way to watch that's kind mm-hmm. of like the entire purpose i think of star ratings for me it's like a practical like it's like um it's more sharp than like going on amazon customer reviews where everyone gives everything five stars it, it succeeded and it's a goal five stars and then like if it's like i had a the the packaging on my uh shipment was like bad so it's a one star product it's like it doesn't make any sense and that's mm-hmm. sometimes like how uh letterbox reviews can work uh where people don't understand star systems <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, fair enough yeah i guess i don't either then but what, what are your thoughts on the star system rj i am neither pro nor con stars i don't really give a shit <laughs> I, well, I, I i do it because it's like yeah it's well i guess my point is go back to my creeps i gave fucking ace ventura five stars you know why <laughs> because i think it's a fun fucking movie so i don't know whatever and <laughs> i've noticed rj you continue to refuse to give martyrs its five-star review uh yeah um that one i will say i i do think it it is a a very good horror movie and it is probably five stars uh but uh i've never talked about this on the show i don't think but when i watched that i watched it with roommate scott and it fucking broke him for three days like he was he was he was pretty down for like three days just emotionally distraught so um there there's your five star review i guess but, <laughs> but, well I, i'll watch it again one day maybe and uh, we'll yeah. see but uh yeah i've only seen that movie once and like I, i'm always afraid of rewatching that just because i'm afraid that uh it just won't live up to my like that first experience mm-hmm. and i don't want that taken away from me yeah yeah i, I saw it twice and I, I i it didn't really get worse for me mm-hmm. although i think compared to some stuff it might age pretty okay I think it's going to age pretty good, but mm-hmm. that's all I could say right now. Like, I think the new Godzilla movie, Shin Godzilla, is going to age okay. Oh, yeah? Nice. Huh. Yeah, yeah, it's good. I keep forgetting to watch it. It's worth it. It's worth I it. I don't know how. Illegally right now, but uh, I mean, uh, it's going to be out soon, like, on Blu-ray yeah. or something. Like, it's inevitable, but, yeah, I mean, like, I, just, like, I always forget. I'm like, oh, yeah, I watched, like, all, like, 29 Godzilla movies last year. I guess I should be excited to watch this new one, particularly yeah. since, like, half the directors, like, made, like, one of the best animated series of all time. Yeah, I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on that because my my vibe with it was compared to the last Godzilla. It, um, it, it feels more in line with... This idea that Godzilla is like an unstoppable, almost omnipotent sort of being. Omnipotent's not the right word, but like uh, near unstoppable force of uh, nature. I mean, that's why I call it Godzilla. It's like it's like a god. Yeah. You know, it's like literally, there's nothing they can really do, and um, the the inability for any kind of bureaucratic governmental structure to to confront it. And some of the best stuff of that movie is it's just like a comedy, basically, where people are trying to. It's more like an illustration of how people would fail to 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 respond to it, um, which sounds kind of bad to like drag that gag out for like twenty thirty minutes. But they really, I think, they do a good job of not 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 rushing it or or wasting it. Like I watched a W. C. Fields movie 
another day, and it's only an hour long. Like, uh, like why not make office part like Christmas party like not sixty minutes long, you know? And make it just like tight, real good. I don't know. Anyway, there's a there's a gag in in this WC Fields movie called "It's a Gift." Um, oh yeah, yeah. He, he tries to fall asleep for 20 minutes and just he keeps getting interrupted by noises going off and that's it's stupid but like oh god like I laughed you know like who cares mm-hmm. it didn't feel it didn't feel uh, inappropriate um, for it to go on um, although maybe it's inappropriate for me to go on talking anymore <laughs> it's like two hour long podcast that's, I don't know how, how long do you guys it's about two hours for you guys yeah, this, is, about, this, this is about typical yeah. is yep. about it no Okay. Um, well, I think we can end it uh, here. Uh, well, I think we've settled it. Uh, Andre Rublev, it's no uh, Ace Ventura pet detective. <laughs> no, it's not. Few movie, few films are, Jer. Well, it could use more animal love, actually. Like Ace Ventura has animal love. There you go. Exactly. He's pet friendly. You heard it first here on The Creeps. Uh, well, after the break, uh, we're going to forge a bell and fight Tatars. RJ, when are you going to watch Andre uh, Rublev again tonight? Uh, I'm already watching it now. I muted you guys like two hours ago. Yeah? I'm what, only about a quarter way through. What, what, what part are you on? Uh, all the, the horse violence. Awesome. Yeah. Well, folks, you can email us at criterioncreeps at gmail.com. You can tell mm-hmm. us about how we're doing, how how you liked Evan, having, mm-hmm. a, having a, a third man in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got a Facebook page. We're on Instagram. We're on Letterboxd. I'm Jared Duncan. He's Barnloaf. And Evan, what's your uh, handle on the Letterboxd? The hanged, the hanged Man? Oh, that's so cringy. I pulled a tarot <laughs> card. I, wanna, I, <laughs> I didn't want it to be my other handle, which is Gumbo Gumbo for everything. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I must admit, I was using it on some, some torrent websites, and I thought, no, somebody's going to find out one day, and they're going to make a correlative kind of like reading on on my accounts no so i'm gonna change it i have i think i've got like 58 days or something before i can change it again if you want to follow me it's hangman okay nice. beware for cringe get ready for cringiness so. okay uh we're on soundcloud uh stitcher mm-hmm. itunes you can subscribe follow like rate, rate review yeah please do yeah. so Great. hey what, whatever happened to that frank guy that uh, emailed in one day i don't know Fuck did that. i scare him off because i compared him to you too much maybe 
Um, you know what's, what's really depressing, folks, is when we search Criterion right now in iTunes, all these like bad Criterion-themed podcasts pop up, and we don't mm. want that. There's like this guy named Criterionist. He like gave up after 51 uh, episodes. We're, we're going to blow him out of the water. So mm. you've got to help us like bury that shit. Um, well, next week, thanks, Evan, for joining us this week. Yes, uh, but for now, you are dead to us. Uh, and it's just the two of us once again. And guess what, RJ? Another goddamn doubleheader. You son of a bitch. And we are still in subtitle town as we're hitting spines number 35 and 36. Henry Georges Clouseau's Diabolique from 1955 and The Wages of Fear from 1953. Oh, man. You guys are fucking lucky. Those are cool movies. Mm-hmm. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, Evan. Thanks, Evan. Yeah, uh, Wages of Fear, RJ, is that sorcerer movie you've been uh, wanting. <gasps> really? Yeah. Well, I'm going to watch Ace Ventura. In preparation. <laughs> In preparation. Yeah. Well, good night, folks. Hope you enjoyed the yadder. Ooh.